0: Now, Catherine has spent her entire career in the medical profession, starting with nursing, working into ICU, and then ultimately becoming a CRNA. So we discuss a host of topics from ICU psychosis, sleep deprivation, mental health, the power of ketamine, her new revitalist clinics, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you, Catherine Walker. Enjoy. Well, Katie, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Well, we were connected by um, an amazing physician in, in Orlando who had on the show, uh, Dr. Ibrahim, Joseph Ibrahim. So let's start with that. How do you guys know each other?
1: So interesting enough, you can tell from my accent probably that I'm a, a little Southern um, to where we're from. I'm from East Tennessee. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim, actually, he... His mother was um, an anesthetist. So she she participated in anesthesia at the local VA hospital. So when I was a baby in nursing school, um, I actually worked at the VA and um, in the operating room. So I worked with his mother and then uh, Joey was actually doing his residency then. Um, So, you know, it was just one of those things. We just kind of passively knew, you know, each other and training and such. And um, you know, seeing everything that he's kind of been through through the years, um, you know, it's just interesting how energies, universities, whatever, you know, you kind of bring people back together when the time comes. So, Dr. Ibrahim, he's a, a wonderful person, uh, excited that he's actually associating, you know, passively with our company, too, with the mental health stuff going on. So, that's kind of how we know each other.
0: Beautiful. And maybe I've been pronouncing his last name wrong this whole time. It's Ibrahim, not Ibrahim.
1: I see Ibrahim, but I'm from Tennessee. So. Oh, okay, maybe.
0: I'll just pretend. That's oh, how we say it in England. <laughs> All right. Um, well, he'll be coming back on again. So I'm actually going to go down and do another face-to-face. He was amazing, even outside of interview. And He came to my old department and did uh, like a trauma class, impromptu trauma class, and had dinner with us. And yeah, just an amazing human being. So for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: Currently, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: I love it. All right. So this will tell you actually why I'm kind of in the role that I'm in. So I'm uh, from a very small town in East Tennessee called Irwin, Um, and it's a super rural area. So I grew up um, to where, you know, education wasn't really prioritized too much. Um, there wasn't anything to do except play sports, so I played five sports. That's that's what I was. I was a jock, and um, you know, education wasn't too hard for me growing up in a rural community. Um, so really, my piece growing up in the you know in in Irwin was um, kind of um, learning who I. Am now, So there's a lot of um, interesting things out there with rural people. They don't people don't know how to speak to them. And it's true. um, You know, it's almost like getting off the reservation sometimes, you know, and and now if you look at rural medicine and rural, you know, there's more sex, there's more drugs, there's more death, um, you know, lower quality of life, all these things. Um, So that's kind of where I came from. um, And I ran right when I turned like 18. Um, I did have a brother. My brother used to do uh, motocross, and he actually uh, died in a motocross accident when I was 14. It was my second week in high school. So I was going to a rural um, high school, right, with one high school for the whole county. Um, so second week in high school as a freshman, he dies, uh, head trauma, actually. And Dr. Ibrahim maybe even remember this. He was he, he could have been in his residency then, maybe not. So um, understanding acute trauma, uh, you know, when you're, he, he was 17 years old. So when, you know, passing of a brother, second week in high school, uh, you know, you're trying to make, you know, reputations and, and all these recognitions in high school is nerve wracking enough. And then my brother had just graduated, actually. He was a senior. Um, and then he died Sunday, the Sunday before he was supposed to start college was when he died. So, um, going back to the school no one knew how to speak to me. No one, right? I mean, this was back in 1998. So um, you know, no one looked at mental health. You know, the only time I was threatened to go to a therapist was when I was misbehaving. You know, so it, it was just interesting to kind of see that. So he was my only sibling. Um, and that actually inspired me. So that his situation, it was very unique. He had a, um, a motocross accident um, to where actually they had wings. So the helicopter came in, picked him up. Um, took him to the hospital. He never regained consciousness. Um, he actually ended up being uh, brain dead, so he ha- he herniated. Um, so, you know, we were able to donate his organs, things like that. But, you know, as a 14-year-old child, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, my parents had no idea what was going on. Um, a surgeon who saw him, you know, like three times that evening going through because his brain just kept swelling, um, you know, he was very uncomfortable. He didn't like working with pediatrics a lot, and it was very traumatic, physically looking traumatic, and um, so the surgeon kind of, and I'm sure it was my parents, too, but it was kind of an open book that was left there with the death of my brother. I mean, now I, I understand we did everything correctly, but it's just interesting with um, acute trauma like that, even though we're professionals in the medical world, we still get uncomfortable talking to family members or having to carry that burden. So where that neurosurgeon, you know, wasn't all comprehensive and presenting himself um, because he was uncomfortable. Great surgeon, but just uncomfortable with it. Like my parents still to this day, and it's been 22 years, my parents will still ask if we if they think that we made the right decision of like taking him off the ventilator. I was like, yes, he was brain dead. You know, so um, th- having that, I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon um, growing up. Uh, that was like, I just want to do neuro. So I was, um, you know, pre-med when I started. I was playing, I played softball in college. Um, I started pre-med, I was working at the hospital. Actually, I actually had two jobs um, doing softball, working at the VA, the hospital. I don't know why I'm this type of person, but I am. And um, actually at the hospital, some of the physicians talked me out of becoming a physician because they said, you know, it's a lot of time, like you want to have kids. Like if you want to be a neurosurgeon, like you're going to have to adopt. It's going to change your whole lifestyle. So I ended up changing to nursing and, um, you know, got my, my four-year degree um, nursing. And the reason I did that was because then that way I would have something to fall back on. Because if you're pre-med and you don't pass your boards to, you know, or you don't don't get into medical school, you don't have a degree to fall back on. So um, it was kind of that I tripped up on nursing, I guess you could say. But now it's kind of evolved into this whole path of where I'm actually getting to work with the brain in a very different capacity. But then also I'm getting to work with trauma Um, because, you know, it's um, it takes one to know one right with trauma.
0: Absolutely. Well, firstly, I'm so sorry to hear about your brother Um, with the mechanics, just from a medical point of view. What was the mechanism of injury? Did he end up flipping on one of the jumps or
1: it was um, it was a tabletop. Right. So um, tabletop jump. He was jumping. He was going to clear the tabletop. Somebody was below him. Um, and he was going to land on that person. So he turned his bike sideways and then who knows, you know, but turned his bike sideways. The bike came up, hit him in the head and ripped his helmet off. Um, so it was just, it was cranial fractures, you know, things like that. Um, and actually I was at, I was at home that day, um, on the phone talking to one of my friends, I guess. And I was with my mom. And, you know, at that time, like I'd never been to a funeral at 14 years of age. You know, I think death, unfortunately, now is probably more common with overdoses and suicides and all this stuff. Um, But, you know, my mom was like, oh, your brother's hurt. I was like, oh, he's fine. He's been in the emergency room a couple of times, broken arms, you know, had some tears, you know, with ligaments and stuff from riding the bikes. And, um, but, you know, like, having to absorb that much as a child that quickly. Like, um, fortunately, I I do have pretty good self-analyzation skills, Um, you know, to where I can understand it. And I've been around all these things, you know, but um, you just don't know, right? You never think you're going to lose a 17-year-old male child because they're strong. You know, he was like 200 pounds. He worked out five days a week. He was semi-pro. You know, you just, you just don't think you're going to he's going to die on the track that day, you know? So, um, so yeah, I wasn't actually at the track. My dad was my uncle and my cousin. Um, and it did severely impact all of them, but unfortunately I can, I've been, I like to face my fears. Um, so, you know, I've been in transplants and and I've been in brain, like I worked in the neuro ICU. I worked in the OR. Um, I've done all this stuff, um, you know, and, my family chooses not to ever talk about things because that's just what they do. So it's unfortunate. I mean, even to this day, 22 years later, you don't talk about it. Like, I mean, they don't. I talk about it freely, um, you know, because I, I don't want people to live that same experience that I did and I saw my family go through. And, you know, and maybe that's the passion that actually has built where I am today.
0: Well, death notification, I think, is such a an interesting topic. I mean, we, we go to the paramedic school, for example. It's, it's funny you said about the doctor thing. I wanted to be a doctor until I realized that I was not academically able to be a doctor, to put it very bluntly. Um, and then fast forward, you know, several years and I'm a paramedic. And I'm like, oh, this is actually what I was thinking of anyway. Be out in the streets with a box and, you know, a prayer and let's see what happens <laughs> versus, you know, the hospital setting. But death notification is something that we were never really taught. I remember there being a chapter on it, but I think there was like a DNR slapped in the same chapter. I mean, it was almost nothing in there. Uh, but I had a guest, Alex Jabron, who was excellent at talking about that whole that whole topic. Now, if you could, you know, go back and turn back time again, what would have been done differently as far as the finality of, you know, your brother's life?
1: You know, um, well, shoot, at that time, I mean, I, I, I always enjoyed a good challenge. I'm still that way today. But, um, you know, we, we fought all the time. You know, I mean, children at that age, you know, we're invincible, right? We just don't think about death at all. So I, I'm pretty sure I probably yelled at him, you know, that day before he actually left. Um, but, you know, I mean, looking <laughs> looking back now, my parents would probably die if they heard this. But um, my parents wanted me to be involved, a lot with the decision making so when they found out he was brain dead you know my parents came to me and they said what do you think we should do do we think you do you think we should help donate his organs looking back (laughs) that's probably not a decision that a 14 year old should be you know involved with so I was like yeah you know if it's going to help people absolutely like you know kind of thing and then um, you know I went to this funeral and we had an open casket right that's what we do in the south um, Even though he had head trauma, he had a hat on. It didn't look too bad, but um, but still yet. So I was sitting there and I was like filling up his chest. And um, I mean, he was everything. He was healthy, neck down. Um, so, you know, they were able to take heart, lungs, you know, a lot of different things. And I was filling up his chest and I was like, he's stuffed. You know, so when you're 14 at your brother's funeral, it's the first funeral. And you feel your brother feels like a taxidermy, you know, kind of thing. And then no one was educated on this, no one, because we choose not to talk about it. So I was like, you know what? What like? And I and I remember actually the person who helped me the most that day was my um, grandfather. And my grandfather was in World War II. He was in Battle of the Bulge. Um, you know, just kind of a, you know, a key player. His dad was actually a um, uh, Cherokee Indian uh, medicine man. You know, so. He, he was like, come here, it's okay, you know, and he would explain things to me on a level that I could understand and accept. Um, but, you know, and two, talking about, you know, death, um, and I'm sure he, we've all been through this, I'm sure, but there was a lot of people um, at the funeral to where um, some people laughed, some were laughing about memory, some people were crying, other people were crying who I didn't even feel knew my brother, um, you know, to where I was just so angry, right? I was so angry at the world. I hated people there. I hated one of my aunts who came up to me and said, I know how you feel. I just lost my great aunt who was 92 last week. And I probably had homicidal ideations at that time. Towards <laughs> that <answer>. I'm sure. <laughs> But you're right. Death is a big thing, right? I mean, it, it it's big. We like to avoid it. You know, it's a part of life. It's very traumatic. You know, it's acute loss. And I mean, even if you somebody's dying, we still lose that person. We can't reach out to them or pick up on the call. But I think that's a big piece. You're right. That's not emphasized in medicine. We, we get it. Um, unfortunately, I think that we start losing that emotional capacity with it because it's a protective factor for us. Um, to where it becomes easy. And that and that's okay, right? I, God knows how many people, you know, we've been around, you know, the death aspects. Um, but I think sometimes, and I think medicine, I mean, Dr. Ibrahim is not this way at all. He's such an anomaly, you know, in the medical field. Um, but I think medicine, we are getting so much stuff thrown our way, especially with COVID, um, that we're getting further away from the empathetic, Aspects, and we're treating it like a, a job, like we're a machine, and I and I think that that's passively traumatizing to people around us, um, and, and the people that are in actually that we're taking care of.
0: Now, what element of that do you think is actually partly to do with the mental health of the provider? Because what I've witnessed in some of my peers along, you know, my my path is that compassion fatigue and i know the soul of the individual hasn't changed but i think it's it's you know the the proverbial bucket filling up and their compassion being diminished by sleep deprivation all these other things that contribute
1: yep i think compassion fatigue is huge and i and i think the piece of it too so you know and i've told people because i deal so much now with more mental health clients sometimes you know so your brain goes to polarities, right? So the way way I look at the brain sometimes, you know, with compassion fatigue, especially is do we get to the point to where it's better to just numb ourselves because we're tired of having the high anxieties or, or the, the highs and the lows that come with death? And is it better just to be in the middle and just go through life to where, you know, we don't appreciate, you know, the sunny days, and we don't appreciate the naps, and we don't appreciate the hugs because it's just too much. And, you know, and I, I don't think that we've done a very good job with medical providers to, to teach that. Um, I don't think any of us understand that at all. I think that we have a lack of boundaries as medical providers for the most part. We don't look at self-care. I'm one of those. Um, You know, I I push and I just expect it's going to be a sprint and then I can go recover. But then that sprint somehow just keeps becoming a longer sprint, you know. Um, So I think, you know, self-care is a big piece. I think um, education with providers is big because if we keep giving in this global pandemic without changing the way the system is, we're all going to die while we do it because we have no more life to give because you can't, one person can't help 5,000 people, all right? I mean, we just can't no matter how well we're trained. There's not enough of us. So somehow we've got to increase access, um, teamwork. Hey, are you okay? Um, you know, education, caring ability for each other, all those things. Yeah, no,
0: I agree completely. And it's, you know, something I've touched on for quite a while now with the NHS, looking overseas, you know, back at my home country and watching the NHS slowly be stripped by politics and privatization, all these things. And this isn't a political thing I'm about to talk about, but when you cut and cut and cut and then a virus sweeps in, what you need, as you said, is more people, more beds, more facilities, more training, more support, more, you know, budget. And instead they had people clapping, which I'm, I've tried it. I mean, I, I clap and nothing appears. So clearly it doesn't help get more nurses into a hospital or beds. But yeah, so you're basically, and someone, one of my guests made a great point. So by clapping, you're basically putting all the responsibility back on the shoulders. Well, we clap for you. So you, you good now? Off you go instead of giving these men and women that especially in this last 20 months have given everything and some of them now are being fired yeah thanks for that but you won't take a shot so now you're out but that's a separate thing but yeah i mean so the so the physical toll from the shifts is immense and then i think the mental health ripple effect we're starting to see now because i don't know if it's just the echo chamber i'm in but i'm starting to see an uptick again in suicides in the responders
1: Yeah. No, those are all great, great points. You're right. It it makes me right when you clap. Okay, I can keep going like I, you know, (laughs) there's blood. I've lost a limb, but I'll keep going. (laughs) Um, You know, you're right. You know, I mean, there's um, there's, you know, one time and I don't know if it's still the case, but there was there were more nurses in the world than any other profession. Um, But they were burnout. you know. So what you just said, and I understand the politicalization aspect where that could be looked at that way. But everything you just said is objective. We can look at the mental health. We should have looked at the mental health of nurses before this, because I'll tell you, I can go back to different rooms in the hospital that I worked in when I lost patients. And I can tell you there's a patient who sticks out in my head, even though I've not been in the ICU working for, you know, 13, almost 13 years. But, you know, but I can tell you where I lost those people. What we need to do in order to maintain quality, right, is we need to make to start monitoring, um, you know, scales for nurses. Um, and then and in that way, and that's actually something we're doing with the police officers is we, we do these surveys. And you do these surveys because you want a baseline, you know, and everybody's so scared that, you know, you're, they're going to fire me. Well, fortunately, right now, people can't really be fired very easily because there are not many people working. So, you know, and, and that needs to be a protection thing, right? Like, I can't be fired if I'm a diabetic. Well, it also needs to be I can't be fired if I'm, you know, ADA should have something on that to protect workers, even if, if they feel out of scale, then it just goes into a category of, hey, we know you've got depression, you know, great. But then also we need to separate that to make sure that you stay healthy. But then two, like if you call in for 30 days and you're not performing at your job, I understand you have depression, but clearly we need to keep those two categories separate, you know, and not combine them. I think we're, we're dealing with such a archaic society. And honestly, is it because we didn't go through a lot for a few decades? Maybe you know. I mean, if you if you think about it, so I'm 37. If you think about the um, kids that are like in their early early to mid 20s, um, the geriatric folk were making fun of those guys because they said, "You all don't even know what it's like to live through anything because you've never lived through anything." You know, you've had everything spoon fed to you. Blah blah blah. Well, here comes COVID. You know, and and now. We don't even know how to I actually went and spoke at a school yesterday, high school, and I told them, you know, about mental health and things like that. And I said, guys, here's the deal. You all have lived through high school with covid. If you come to me or you come to your teacher and you ask something specific to deal with your age group living with covid in high school, we can't say, oh, yeah, I, this is what I did when I was your age at that time. These kids are a brand they are brand new in dealing with a worldwide pandemic that no one has seen. I mean, Spanish flu, that was in the 1920s. There's probably a couple people that remember that in the world, but you probably couldn't get a really good analysis from them.
0: Well, also, the, uh, the safety of the school. I mean, most generations younger than me, I mean, sorry, o- older than me and probably older than you, have no idea what it's like to do a code red drill, to have to understand how to practice to pile desks up so one of your classmates doesn't murder you. That's another thing that our children oh. have to deal with.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I just remember the hurricane. We did the hurricane. No, we did tornadoes. I was, um, we did, we did hurricanes too in Tennessee. I was always wondering why we did that one. Again, <laughs> in a rural town. Um, but, uh, but you're right. I mean, when you think about those things and right with the shootings and then to think about teachers, you know, I mean, they're, they are probably a very underserved population that's not getting the resources that they need to stay healthy. Um, so, you know, the, what creates change, right, I guess, is a system that's broken. So or it's, you know, it has flaws in it. So I'm hopeful, you know, for the future. We can at least identify this stuff.
0: Absolutely. Well, I know that you found yourself in ICU when you started your nursing room. Um, so a couple of things I'd love to kind of pull from that experience. Firstly, Again, back to the COVID thing, back to the mental health, back to the burnout of responders and the medical professional professionals. To me, to my layman eyes, it seems like the elephant in the room is the horrendous obesity epidemic that we have, sending so many what should be very healthy young men and women, you know, into ERs because they're basically dying slowly. So. We, was there were there any common denominators that loading the question that you saw with people coming into the i c u s and um you know the specialty areas that you worked in
1: Yeah, you know um now now you're going to take me on my vitamin rant please uh, <laughs> so, so um okay, vitamins have always believed in them, I'm sure um, in medicine, you know we've really went. Far away from right to where we even have providers that laugh at vitamins. Um, I had a provider say, "You can't boost your immune system." I'm like, "Okay." Um, you know, so it you know we your professionals are telling you. Your immune system does nothing. So here's some steroids that will, you know, immunosuppress you. We don't believe we can boost it. We do believe that we can suppress it. So that makes no sense. Um, So we're going to give you steroids because steroids give you that quick high almost to feel good, um, even though it's really just putting a Band-Aid or making whatever underlying potentially worse. And then we're going to give you antibiotics. They're going to wipe out everything. And that antibiotic is going to treat everything, you know. So we're so, we're such a society stuck on steroids and antibiotics to where vitamins. So um, I've been involved in vitamin infusions for, oh, four years now. Um, personally, initially, I was one of those. I was the westernized, like, you know, we get it from our food, whatever. Um, but then I started seeing all these things. I started seeing all these studies, you know, National Institutes of Health have a lot of neat things with that. Sepsis with vitamin C, Um, you know, so there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. Um, So, and they're, and they're looking at this and they're like, okay, now wait a minute. So here's the neat thing that I've learned, especially about vitamins is just because it's not on the first page of Google doesn't mean that it's not there or that it's not real. It's, we're, in a society that's overrun by marketers, which I understand, you know, it's a very competitive marketing space. Um, but if you go and you start specifically looking for things, peer-reviewed research, all these things, all these different things, um, there's a lot of material out there that like blows your mind kind of thing. So um, what I've learned, grossly speaking, because we could talk about vitamins all day because I am very, very um, passionate about them as well is oral vitamins, the max you can absorb is 40%. So, you know, if you're taking 500 milligrams of vitamin C at one time, um, the max that your body can actually use is about 200 milligrams because it goes through the first pass, GI absorption, all these different things. And then people, too, we're in this uh, mindset as, um, you know, smart individuals that we are, um, that it's water soluble. So what's the point of taking it? You know, so um, with vitamin C specifically, when you take a lot at one time, which is what we like to do in society, um, you know, just to get it over with, like, just do it real quick, instantaneous. You take a lot at one time, you oversaturate your receptors, and then you're in the bathroom, and you feel like you are probably having an allergic reaction because your bowel just died leaving you kind of thing. (laughs) But. The neat thing about like IV vitamins is it passes the first pass metabolism, passes the gut. It goes IV. When it goes IV, you can absorb up to 100% of that vitamin on a cellular level, right? So it's bypassing all these different organs that are taking little pieces of it. And IV vitamins can stimulate over 800 enzymatic processes that last for four to six weeks. So the really fascinating thing about vitamin C being water-soluble is it goes in, it turns on your immune system, your immune system starts optimizing itself for four to six weeks. And thank God it's water-soluble because you just pee it out and you don't have to worry about toxicities. So if you look at vitamin C specifically, specifically vitamin C, you can take... There's studies out there that say you can take 1.5 megs per kg in order to um, not have any side effects. So you're talking about like I'm a you know I'm 140 pounds like I can take like 120,000 milligrams or it's, it's 1.5 grams per kilo. I'm sorry. Um, so I you, I can take like 120,000 you know um, milligrams of vitamin C, meaning that if you look at the 500 milligram um, you know, chewies that we take orally, we could take like 10 bottles of that if our gut could absorb it, which it can't, so don't do that. Um, But you can do that IV and it goes in and what it does, what it's showing is it's a huge antioxidant. Um, It's actually healing of uh, tendons and ligaments. People with COVID, so we actually have a study going on with COVID right now um, and vitamin C, They have real time results with their lung functions like during. So like I'll put a pulse ox on them, you know, and and their pulse ox will be like 88, Uh, give them, you know, 25 grams of vitamin C, which is a, it's a pretty good dose, right? That would have to be, you'd be taking, you know, 50 gummies at one time, but you can do 25 grams of vitamin C in in an hour and people are, you know, you're fine. And they notice real time results to where their pulse ox will go up like four to 6%. There's a, physician in, it's either Virginia or West Virginia, who um, was discovering that vitamin C, when you give it with sepsis in the hospital, is actually sepsis starts getting better. And it's just vitamin C. You know, my um, husband's a cardiothoracic surgeon. And I was reading something about B12. I was like, hey, you know, if you get, you know, there's something called basalplegic syndrome, where um, people after heart surgery, they can't um, keep their blood pressure up. Like their heart's beautiful and it's pumping really, really hard. And their pressure's like 40 over 20. Um, but, and it's your secondary messengers and all these different things. Every, everything just stays relaxed. There's no resistance. And you can sit there and you can give them every blood pressure medicine that you have. And it's just like pouring water in the ocean. You give them one shot of B12. There goes their blood pressure up, you know. And my husband was like, people are going to think I'm crazy giving B12 to my patients. Fortunately, it came out in the, the cardiothoracic annals uh, a couple of weeks later. He's like, well, you got to look at this. They're giving B12. Wow. So I think when, with your question about like obesity and vitamins and such, I think that we are so grossly immunosuppressed. Um, and, and the only thing that we're doing in medicine is we're actually giving immunosuppressants instead of working with the immune system, I just wonder how much society is going to shift to be like, okay, here, specifically take this, and it will actually start stimulating these things. So do I think obesity, you know, contributes a lot to that? I do. I mean, I think obesity, I think lack of education, um, society, you know, that really has a big impression on my study's better than your study when it's not really a study at all. Um, You know, so it's people, you can win any argument these days, uh, depending, you know, you've got the internet at your fingertips. So we can sit here and I can tell you that I'm a, you know, a four foot tall black male. And I could prove that, you know, online. Um, But really, like, we've got to be able to be like, we've got to have a little bit better critical thinking skills. And I think society... We've lost that a little bit. Um, so so yeah, I mean, ICU, you see everybody. I mean some people it's I actually worked at Cedar Sinai as well out in California. Um, it was interesting. They were 150 bed ICU when I was out there. Um, but you know, with Cedar Sinai, there were people that trusted the providers. Immensely, without ever questioning it, and, and you know who knows? I mean, the population, you know, at Cedar Sinai at that time, um, there was a lot of um, Yiddish and Russian and Armenian individuals, um, you know, and and they just probably didn't understand, you know, language specifically. And then you know, it's you're in America, so you're expecting you're getting the best health care. And I was like, you should ask a question. Don't always listen to what these guys are saying, you know. So. I think society as a whole. I think we got a lot of room for improvement.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's that inherent um, belief and trust in someone with a white coat and a stethoscope draped around their neck. And I had a kind of, you know, jarring moment. I wrote about it in my book when um, I hurt my back, and I had this PA in this clinic that you know they use for workman's comp refused to start setting me up with uh, physical therapy and told me, but literally like ordered me to take painkillers and uh, And anti-inflammatories. And this guy was probably 300 pounds, like breathless from walking down the hall to come see me. And it was like, it just made me realize, I'm like, this is what everyone needs to ask first. Before you take the advice of your doctor, ask if you should trust the advice of your doctor. If they're not applying it to their own health, how the hell are they able to look you in the eyes and give you health information so that would eliminate a lot and there's no disrespect to the minds of some of these professionals but if they haven't even applied what they're talking about to themselves and are a walking example of 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 their knowledge then that should be a giant red flag but i think you're like you're right we all just blindly trust these people because they got a plaque on the wall that says they finished med school
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, You know, in mental health, because I'm I'm actually getting my psychiatry degree right now, too. They really do focus on providers in behavioral health to, to look at themselves, introspection and such. And you're right, in the medical world, we don't do that. Uh, right? Out of sight, out of mind. We're just perfect. Don't look at me, you know, like, and, and we, then we just tell each other that they're crazy if they're crying on the job, right? I mean, that's just what we do is we were trained where they're weak, you know, so we're the worst ones, honestly, <laughs> um, to, to sit out there. But you're, you're absolutely right with that. I think, too, and this is something that Ethically speaking, I was just always taught a person's a person's a person. When that person comes in, you know, you have a standard of care, you follow all these things. One thing that I've noticed, so I've been, I, you know, did ICU, I did anesthesia in the hospital for about 18 years. I've been out in the outpatient world for almost four. Um, But when I came to the outpatient world, it's interesting because providers do push their values on clients and kind of like the guy that you just said, I mean, like he didn't give you this options of like, okay, here's physical therapy, here's Tab, here's surgery. He was just like, no, do this, you know? And, and that's one thing, you know, and not getting political, but um, you know, with the whole COVID stuff, like um, providers have discharged people who didn't get the vaccine, you know, from their, from their practice and they wouldn't take care of them, you know, or, you Uh, with a vitamin infusion. So there's tons of studies out there about um, people who get gastric bypass that they don't have the micronutrients because they don't have the bowel to absorb it. So there's tons of evidence to get IV vitamins out there for gastric bypass to help these people actually get the ingredients that they need. And there's gastric bypass surgeons who say, absolutely not. You know, and I'm like, I didn't think we were supposed to impose our values or our opinions on individuals, but my gosh, out here in the outpatient world, that's almost every day. And it's, it's insulting. Like, I'm like, those are our colleagues. Like, you know, if somebody wants to go and, do meditation for their depression I'm not going to force them to get on an SSRI go do meditation you know like Johns Hopkins has great research out there that shows that it can help your depression like what are what are we doing you know I mean are are we so far down the line in our own little bubble that we forgot where we came from
0: well what impact (laughs) do you think do the the drug reps and drug companies have and the reason I asked that when I first came to the States. I remember being in Broward County somewhere near near Miami. Um and that particular time I'd had some sort of, you know, sinus infection and waited and waited and waited. And I'm like, All right, this is not going anywhere. I'm gonna have to just go get a script and get something to knock this thing down. Um and I remember waiting feeling like shit and watching you know well look like someone from a counter from a department store, a makeup counter, person after person after person wheeling their little wheelie suitcase in and then when I finally got in there, it was like a candy shop. This guy's starting to throw all kinds of samples of all, all kinds of things. It wouldn't even relate it to what I had. Um, I know that's changed a little bit now, but based on that lens, there seems to be a lot of pressure as well from supplying the incredible industry that sick people are versus maybe a push towards proactively preventing a lot of these diseases in the first place.
1: I agree. Um, So, you know, right, they'll talk about like a business plan. You hear this, these horrible stories about medical providers, about like, you know, if your patient stays healthy, then they'll never come back, you know, and it's like, okay, isn't that the goal? Um, (laughs) First do no harm. um, (laughs) Fortunately... I think we are doing so well at keeping everyone sick across the world. I feel like if we change it to where we become proactive at trying to keep people home, we actually might have a really good challenge at doing this, right? So um, looking at the reps, one, medical reps, God love their souls. They're in a hard position, you know, to where they have to be beautiful. You get Botox, you make your hair look good. You look young, you look hot because that's what people are attracted to. And it, you won't ever see an ugly rep. I mean, like if you're in the OR with ortho, you always, if you're, if you're attracted to good looking people, you want to be in the ortho room with the ortho reps because all of them are previous professional athletes, male and female, you know, that are just like models, right? So they, you know, it's, it's one of those things to where superficially we hire these people in because they can sell a product, you know, and, and those guys, you know, they get fired like basically on the spot, the reps do. There's usually no benefits package to them. There's none of that stuff there. So, you know, it is, it's a, it's a really antiquated system. I won't say it's, it isn't messed up. Sure. It's messed up, but I always try to be positive, but um, think about reps though. They'll come and tell you how to put somebody on a drug. Tell me how many reps have came to tell someone how to take someone off a drug. And if you go back and you look at SSRIs, the studies, they only looked at three months, right? We've got people on SSRIs for 28 years And these people, like I had a lady, actually, she's like, I just want to feel better. I was like, okay. She's like, I'm kind of towards the end of my rope. And I was like, ah, you know, I I understand that. Like, when did you get on antidepressants? 1982. I'm like, well, shit. I mean, you're, you're, you're screwed, you know, because like, who are you from 1982 until now, except you've been on 38 different drugs that have been mind altering and God knows how they change the landscape of your brain. So I think pharmaceutical companies and reps, and again, I try to be very i um, optimistic because I do get frustrated at times, but I do believe that people have the best intentions when they enter a field. Um, I do believe that the pharmaceutical companies who are getting their balls busted right now because they've been sued and they're having to pay $125 billion out with opioids, you know, the opioid crisis. I think they could help their reputation if they started telling providers, Hey, Here's also how you get people off a drug. So one of the big ones, we might think opioids are a bad situation right now. Benzos, benzodiazepines are going to be the next one that comes out because you can't. Here's what we're doing. This is horrible. And, and again, I've learned so much since I left the hospital. Um we're taking somebody in. Okay, say I'm one. Say I take Xanax, and I can. I'm taking five milligrams a day because apparently you can take five milligrams of Xanax a day, and that's normal. So I'm taking five milligrams of Xanax a day. I've been taking it, you know, for ten years. Whereas chronic use is actually greater than six weeks. Um, so I've been taking it for ten years. It's my life. I want to get off of it because I'm just tired. Um, and I go into a rehab to get off of Xanax. So what do we do? We give you Valium to get you off Xanax. So we're giving you another Benzo to replace your Benzo to get you off of that because Mm -hmm. the half-life is shorter and, and it's, you know, it's, it helps you get through the withdrawals more quickly. But then fortunately what we do is we discharge you within two hours, right? If I give you, if I get Valium, I got to stay for at least two hours because I don't want to make sure I'm having medication reaction, but then I'm going to get discharged and then I'm going to withdraw my ass off basically and then my chances of going to jail are increased in about two weeks because I'm withdrawing so badly. My body can be numb. My mouth can be numb. I could go psychotic, like I'm uh, tingling-wise. Like there's something called post-acute withdrawal syndrome with benzos. In the States, we don't really look at it. In the UK, they do look at it more. You're supposed to, when you're coming off benzos, if you've been on them greater than six weeks, you're supposed to come off 10% every three months. As providers, we take people off in three days. You know, so there was actually an orthopedic surgeon. There's an article about him in Johns Hopkins, or he worked at Johns Hopkins, um, and he killed himself. Uh, about six weeks after he was off his opioids because his anxiety was so bad that he couldn't control anything. And that was, that's on us. You know, I mean, that's on us as providers. They can have insomnia for up to 10 years when you take off benzos, I mean, fortunately with opioids, you feel like shit for a little bit, but then it's out of your system. You just have to learn how to, well, I say this lightly, you, but you have to learn how to create emotions again, because when you're on opioids, you don't create emotions. You're just a big old numbug walking around, you know, but then when you get off opioids, emotions start coming back. You got to learn how to categorize them. That's the hard, hard part. Um, and, you know, benzos, you're so overly stimulated with everything and they've actually proven the brain gets blocked. And here's what they think is happening is once those benzos go away, the brain actually starts regenerating again and it just takes a second to get it going. Um, You know, and that's what they feel is almost like a hyper excitable part of the brain that's trying to catch up with the other part of the brain. And, We know this generally, but not really. I mean, how many people look this stuff up besides me? Probably not many. Um, But we're also giving our pediatric population as young as four benzodiazepines. So what the hell are we doing there, right? I mean, their brains are growing until they're 26. They're only four years on this planet. We're giving them drugs to block their brain growth. Um, because it's easier on us and we're not finding the root cause. we We're trying to find the root cause. We're taking them to awesome providers like ourselves and we're putting them on benzos. So there's going to be a benzo crisis. I'm calling it. I'm calling it right now. You can come back to me in 10 years and we'll, we'll confirm that was correct.
0: All right. I'm putting it in my <laughs> calendar now. <laughs> no, it's, it's such an interesting perspective. And again, that's why I love these conversations. All these, these lines start, you know, intersecting and overlapping. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the medical difference between you touch them in the UK, obviously where I'm from and here, when I first worked on a summer camp in America, it was 1994. And I remember there was, you know, the main house and then around the side was a little nurse's office and there would be a line of kids around the building. And so I was, you know, become friends with the nurse by that point. I'm like, what's going on here? Oh, the kids are getting their meds. I was like, what meds are they getting? Oh, it's Ritalin it's like okay and what's that for oh it's for ADD at the time it was no H it was back pre-H <laughs> um I'm like well, what the hell is ADD and she told me I'm like and literally I mean there weren't that many kids on the camp I mean it was probably I forget now 300 or something and there must have been at least 50 kids wrapped around this building and you just I'd never even heard of it as, a, as an Englishman. So. Yeah, seeing the drugs that are pumped into our kids and in talking to people like uh Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who wrote a book on the school shooting, the school violence. And there's many layers, but one of the things he talks about as well is the, the psych medication and maybe, you know, some of these these shooters. And like you said, you add sleep deprivation, you add some benzos, you get that psychosis, and then now all of a sudden it seems a good idea to mimic the video game that you love and go into your school.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, no, I mean, there's there's a oh, there's absolutely a lot to that. So, you know, and then two critical thinking skills and coping mechanisms. Those are the two big things our children need to learn. You know, and actually I talked to a child psychologist and he told me, he said, you know, because like I have an 11 year old daughter and I'm like, hey, am I doing a good job? Like, I don't know. You know, I'm just I'm, I'm guessing how to do this. Um, but he said, you know, there's two things you need to teach children, empathy and independent thinking. You know, and and that's the piece of it. You're right. But the more we condition this idealistic sense of what is normal, it's not normal. Like we're, we're training our babies to grow up and have active addictions because we're saying you need to do five sports after school. Like as soon as you get out, I want you in three sports or I want you doing this and you're going to be a professional. And, you know, and it's and it's year round. And then it's, you know, and they never learn when you sit down what's the next step that you do, you know? So it's all, it's almost like we've advanced, we've updated our system so much that our, our base is so porous. It's starting to fall in. And, you know, and, and fortunately, I mean, we've got to go back to the basics, I think, you know, to be able to take life slow, appreciate it when it's fast, but then also recognize you got, have to have time to recover.
0: Yeah. Well, and you mentioned empathy as well. I think that's, Something that I've noticed. I've had a guy on who who speaks internationally now about the Finnish school model, um, Pasi Salberg. And uh the way in Finland that they look at raising a child through the school system is holistic. You know, they'll 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 invest more money in some of their poorer schools, or maybe there isn't, you know, a good parental support for some of their community. They'll look at the child on the mental health side and the physical health side, um, and, and you look at what our children go through like my son's now 14 he's um freshman in high school as well but uh i forget exactly eight nine around that time they're sitting in front of a computer for four hours doing standardized testing and yet i don't know how much time they get taught about kindness and compassion and being part of a community instead of you know, doing anti-bullying campaigns maybe raise your kid not to be an asshole in the first campaign. Maybe that would be a better, you know, stance. But I don't see that. And then, sadly, you turn on the TV and these horrific individuals that made it to the top of the political poll left and right are also like that. And then sports people. And, you know, so now the kids are looking at a role model. Now I'm on, you know, TikTok. And, you know, oh, I just need to dance and then everything will be fine. You know, so those poor kids, I mean, they get bombarded with all this stuff. Contrary to 80, 100 years ago, where I'm sure it was, as you said, so few stimuli that, you know, if, if, if you didn't act as a good member of the community, then, you know, the, the cows didn't get milked or the chickens didn't get fed and there was a repercussion and, you know, right. you learned your right. lesson.
1: Right. Yeah. No, you're right. And, and I really do. I mean, I'm I'm more hopeful now than i was ever before because there's so many good people coming together like guys we have got to change this you know um and and i and i think you've got unfortunately i think you have to get here to change it uh one of my directors in um, anesthesia school she was telling me that you know that life always shifts like a pendulum and i've always kept this in my head but she's like in medicine she goes will go way over here to quality and they start losing too much money. So then they shift to quantity. And she said, you'll always see that in medicine. It goes quality, quantity, quality, quantity. And she goes, appreciate it when you feel like it's in the middle because it's going to the other side. And I thought that that was so, you know, wise. And and really, I, I look at that with life right now, you know, like, OK, appreciate it now because nothing is stagnant in life. Right. We're always look at physics. We're always moving. Everything is always in motion. So yeah, we we definitely we, we got we, we need it we need to change something. But we've got a lot of people coming to the plate, which I think is exciting.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what's so great about you know documentaries, podcasts, th- and things where the filters have been removed mostly. Um, you know, and then like this community that I've been so honored to have on this podcast alone with you and Joe and all these other people. You know, these are great minds, and there's there's no barrier these are just great people spending you know hour and a half two and a half hours whatever ends up being sharing their thoughts and at the end of it and i can say this listening to other people's podcasts that i enjoy like oh i'd never thought of it that way dan crenshaw you know bernie sanders whatever thank you for giving me the entire story i either a still don't like you or b i've grown on you know but whatever but i think that's the problem as well we get these little sound bites it's clickbait samples and and you know we have got to this point now, and I hope that these voices, the real leaders in the world, everyone's so sick of these other people that they're finally turned to some of these these outlets and go, okay, I'm ready now. You know, what we what have we got to do? Roll our sleeves up and start fixing this problem.
1: Right. No, yeah. And, and that's one piece of it. You know, I mean, I think anybody can, if anybody walks in and says, hey, healthcare is fantastic, or our school systems are wonderful, you know, I mean- you typically, if you have a private school, you know, and you have enough money to actually do that in the States, you know, you can achieve that. But um, I think right now, I mean, I think we can see may, maybe that's what we're doing. Maybe we were overcompensating with um, superficial inflation and speed um, to keep our minds kind of satisfied because we have all these other things that aren't keeping us satisfied, you know, and kind of the core level of, you know, going out and milking your cow kind of thing.
0: Absolutely i I wonder if you mentioned about um you know World War two generation i I like one of the things I said on here multiple times is I don't understand how we f- had men and women fight for complete strangers overseas, and then ten years later they're hanging black people from trees again. I don't know how that disconnect happened, and you look at the the boomer generation I'm doing air quotes of which there are phenomenal people, but that to me seems to be where that um That shifted. And I wonder if the World War II generation overcompensated and put too much cotton wool around their kids. And that began this kind of uh, slow loss of community. And then, you know, consumerism kind of found its way in instead.
1: Yeah. You know, I've never thought about that. You're right. We went and fought for complete strangers and then we turned on our own. yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, I would have to, you'd have to take me back to those days and we just have to walk around and analyze people. Yeah, or
0: punch uh, them in the face before it's happened.
1: Right. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, that you're right. That's a big piece of it. And but then again, you know, I mean, maybe the war, I mean, you know, even as horrible as it was, you know, maybe it did unify some groups to where they felt like they were each other's brothers, even though they didn't know each other. And that's kind of how we are in med- in the medical space. You know, I mean, once you know, you find out I'm medical and you're medical, it's like we kind of have that common bond, um, you know, and, and maybe that's part of it is. You know, trying to find instead of erasing cultures, maybe we should try to find, you know, what connects us based upon, you know, what what we do know, and and, and to be all, you know, more accepting, more inclusive. Um, what was that? So I used to, um, I used to get in the room with all the difficult surgeons, right, when I did anesthesia because I did well with them, um, and even if I didn't care for any, I would. Um, I would do fine with them. And one one reason that I did that, and I and I actually do this with people that I may dislike too, is you're supposed to find one thing that you respect from someone, not that you like, one thing that you respect. And that's how you're supposed to start a relationship with every person. And, you know, so, you know, if a, I mean, I have a neurosurgeon, I love him, but he's sometimes known as a dick. Um, But, um, you know, but but, you know, but I'm sitting there in the room with him. There's only like four of us, right, that could actually go into his room because everybody was kicked out or they argued or whatever else. So, you know, but he wonderful surgeon. I would go to him if I needed brain surgery. Um, But, you know, to sit there and look at somebody who everybody hated at one time and to say, you know what, this guy sacrificed so much to be a brain surgeon. And and actually he would like sit there and like pick older women's hair, like when he's doing a craniotomy after he shaved a little bit. At the end, he'd like pick her hair up to be like completely perfect because that was her biggest worry, you know, that her kids would see her with a bald spot, um, you know, and to see somebody, you know, give that much detail to something that may be, it's her hair, whatever, you know, but that's her identity. Like, you know, so little things like that, I think in life, if we can go with finding that one thing we respect about a person, and I don't care if the person's purple or pink or male or transgender or whatever a person is, we're all people, you know, and if we can just find that one thing, you know, maybe that's, maybe we, maybe we're starting our relationships off wrong, You know, we're looking at how much money do you have or the status or, you know, whatever else. Like, maybe we should just look at like Get to know somebody.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's the problem is that we seem to be driven to find differences, not commonalities. So you ask, you know, a member of the Inca tribe. You know, what do you want from life? Well, I want to watch my kids grow up. You know, I want to put a roof over their head, food in the stomach. Huh, I'm from England, same as me. Isn't that crazy? You run around in a loincloth, I wear a suit, but we actually want the same things. Instead, they're like, oh, look at those savages running around. Well, you know, well look at those alien people over there, you know? And it's just these 10, 10, 20% that we actually are different, that we should celebrate, are the only portion of a human being that we focus on. Well, you're a Democrat, you're an anti vaxxer, you're a, no, you're a human being that's you know working their ass off trying to protect their kids and doing the best they can as you said fumbling through parenthood and marriage and everything else and most of us have got that in common
1: yeah no you know what i mean we're such a reactive society so actually i called I, i i called the state lawyers one day and i was asking about you know different licensures and stuff and they're like so what are you calling to complain about? And I'm like, nothing. I'm calling because I want to be proactive because I'm in my own bubble with this company, the kind of thing. And I said, I want my own. We need to make a bubble. Like we need to, we need to make sure that there's going to be, you know, standard of care, consistency, best practices, all these things. And they were so confused. These are the people that are over the state that are lawyers that are very well respected. And they said, we're not used to people being proactive. We're used to. The people in the town going to their representative, representative coming to the lawyers, then they make a law. That's part of your issue. Yeah. Because yeah. you're having uh, someone who knows nothing about medicine, who's going to a senator, again, knows nothing about medicine, unless they're a physician who is a senator. And then they're going to the lawyers, and then those guys are making the laws. So We live in such a reactive society to where like what you're saying with the anti-bullying thing. You know, I mean, maybe what we need to do is in kindergarten, we take the thing like identify one thing that you respect from each of your classmates, you know, and teach these children respect on a very basic level for others because we start quantifying people. And that person, that's how school shootings happen, right? We're not going to sit there and be like, oh, if I shoot Billy, hes it's going to hurt him. He's going to bleed. He's probably not going to be able to breathe for a second before he dies. You know, and then it's going to hurt his parents. And, oh, he's got that little sister. They don't have that thought process to, you know, they just look at like, boy, bad, dead. You know, so, you know, maybe if we start that at the baby age, then maybe the babies. Will grow up to be like oh well actually I mean he yeah he's a dick but actually I do respect him because he goes and he every weekend and he helps take care of children that don't get fed you know so it's yeah I mean again times need to change <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I love these conversations the other thing that one of my friends Steph who was a firefighter paramedic and then got into ICU nursing um, she told me about Um, ICU psychosis. And when I started becoming more and more educated on the sleep medicine side, I'm I'm like, facepalm, of course. I mean, you know, you have these people, they need nutrition to heal. They also need sleep to heal. And you got people waking them up every hour taking BPs and you got dings and lights and flashes. So did you have any perspective of that element of the mental health side or the sleep deprivation side of patients in ICU?
1: Yes. So, yes, I did. And I actually had some some experiences sometimes um, to that at night because I, I did night shift for oh, two or three years, um, you know, and always at nighttime, you're going in and checking on your patients and stuff. And I, I remember this one guy he had a um, a bike accident. There's several bike guys, you know, and it makes you not want to ride a bike on, on, on the road, you know, because it's just horrible um, to see the outcomes. Um, but I uh, had this guy, um, he's intubated. He was awake. We were doing a trial to get him off the vent. And, um, you know, I'd walk in and he would like – he'd be looking like at me and like smiling. But then he'd look like right above me and like fear would come into his eyes, you know. And he'd start looking around real fast. And I was like, oh, God, there's something behind me, you know, and who knows what it is. It's <laughs> like a dark side. I don't know.
0: Um, but, you
1: know, no, I think – right. I, I don't think that we give the emphasis with um, psychos. I, I just don't think that we still understand mental health, period. Um, the thought process, then, you know, what they would tell us with ICU psychosis is that it was the same. It's almost like the Truman show, you know, it'd be the same thing. And then they're sleep deprived and then they get ICU psychosis. And then the way you break it is you just transfer them to another room and it typically will break it. Um, what I'm seeing now with everything that we I've seen, um, especially working with a lot of PTSD stuff as well is, um, the brain. So. Our brains do not know right from wrong, good from bad, reality from ideology, um, time. Our brain does not know time. That's why we have watches everywhere. Um, so, no, our brain doesn't, they doesn't know a lot of these things, so there's a lot of conditioning that goes on there. So, think about being in an ICU, all right? Picture, say, I'm in a car wreck or, you know, and I, I break myself and I'm on a ventilator. The last thing I remember, I don't know how many people you've talked to that have came back after they, you know, after they had a heart, when we just have, you know, people who would have like, a, um, you know, an MI, Widowmaker, LED kind of thing, you know, and you freeze them, right, for 24 hours and then they pop back to life and they're absolutely fine, even though they died and had CPR and all this stuff. Those are the, always the ones I really like talking to in the ICU because I was like, oh, what's the last thing you remember? Um, so actually one guy, he was young, he's like 47, um, had a heart attack. And um, I was talking to him after he woke up and completely fine, you know, had no no um, deficits or anything. And he was a runner. And, and fortunately, he was running through the hospital parking lot, uh, fell over, a pacemaker rep came, started CPR on him, got him in, got him cath. It was L.A.D., made him cold, you know, all that stuff. So I asked him, I said, and, and actually, this gives me a lot of reprieve, too, with thinking about death of individuals. But... I said, what's the last thing you remember? He said, the last thing I remember is dropping my daughter off to school. So, you know, so he remembered dropping his kid off to school that morning. And he actually didn't. He didn't go asystole until like two hours later. And I was like, you were going for you were running that day. And he's like, really? He's like, now, typically, that's what I, I do. But it was the last moment that he remembered was dropping off his child. And fortunately, you know, with a lot of these people in the ICU and they had me as a nurse when they woke up. And then I did this whole interview um, just because I thought it was fascinating. Um, they usually would remember something significant before they died that was positive. So picture, you know, you remember something. So, OK, I drop my daughter off to school. Well, then I go and I die. And then I wake up and I'm laying in a bed where I know no one. I have a straw in my mouth. I feel like a fish out of water. Um, I'm, I have my arms restrained to the bed so I don't pull out my tube. And I'm sitting there, and all these strangers are coming in acting like they know me. And that's my reality, even though it shouldn't be at all. So, like, some of the therapists that I've talked to, they helped to explain this to me, and I think it makes so much sense, is our brain is supposed to be in the middle, right? So, you are these balanced brains. It's supposed to be in the middle. So I picture it like um, I always picture it as a gas tank because I can see it better. But, um, but battery, I guess, would be a better definition of it. But to be in the middle of the battery, you don't want to be overheated and you don't want to be almost dead. You want to be in the middle. So now it's the point of training our brain to stay in the middle. So what our brains do, and let's talk about PTSD specifically, but what our brains do is we're in the middle on the right side's reality. On the left side is fantasy or ideology, right? We're supposed to be in the middle, to where we go and we live our life. Yes, but we expect that there may be some risk involved. What happens when my um, normal life of my check boxes of dropping my daughter off and going for a run gets, you know, thrown out of proportion because something busted my balls, kind of right there and knocked me off track? Is that? unrealistic space just became my reality. So what the brain will do is it will shift over here more towards the unrealistic side. And then therefore the brain gets off balance because it's sitting there all the time waiting for that unrealistic thing to happen. And what that's called is um, oh um, catastrophic thinking. So, if p- anybody who's been in anything bad, I do the same thing, but I have to. I, I work on mine uh, by uh, looking at statistics. But um, you know, catastrophic thinking is your brain goes to the worst, and then when the worst doesn't happen, you feel better about yourself. So that's what happens with like PTSD stuff. Is we, we start living our, our reality is really not. We, then we we become paranoid. Um, you know, we're waiting for this horrible thing to happen. And we we don't want to wait for it. Our brain has shifted over here. And it's making us live in these, you know, categories that we don't want to live. And I'll actually put people, um, I'll give an example of, I'm like, okay, picture you're on a dirt road. There's a lot of boulders. You're sitting in the wood buggy. Your brain's the horses. Your brain knows where all those boulders are. The buggy doesn't. So you're having to live what your brain's doing. And it's very unfortunate because you feel every one of those, like, you know, gut moments when your subconscious does something. So when the brain shifts over there, that becomes the reality. Same way with ICU psychosis. It's going to be the same way with any type of psychosis. Um, But that... When you start hearing things, when you start seeing things, when you start having delusions, hallucinations, um, sleep, you know, uh, when your sleep's absolutely off um, and you just you can't sleep enough to heal and things like that, that's when the brain just kind of stays there. And if it's in that idealistic category, it it will get worse. It's like it's conditioning itself. And it doesn't know. And the person is out of control. So really what you have to do is you have to break that cycle of what the brain's doing, put it back in reality. It's almost like jumping into a bath of ice water for your brain. And if you can do that, that's when you break the idealistic sense. So when you're talking about sleep earlier, there's five things that I notice with people. Um, It'd be interesting to see how many actually high up these five things overlap but um, symptoms of depression, anxiety, PTSD, insomnia, and suicidality all commonly overlap. We live in a society to where we look at one diagnosis. We look at one diagnosis, and then we give you two diagnoses, and then we give you two pills to handle depression and anxiety, which exist on polarities, when really if we could put the brain back in the middle with a substance of some sort to reset itself, then the brain knows what to do. We're not giving it credit. We're we're telling it, "Hey, you do these bullet points, step one through ten. No critical thinking, no nothing, and you'll be fine. Just just show up to work, you know." Um, so, yes, that was kind of a long winded one for psychosis, but um, but yeah, those are that's the way I kind of look at it. Um, the brain.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's so interesting and thank you for that because it's a very different kind of um, explanation I've had in the past. But it just again, it overlaps all these other great explanations. But firstly, with the psychosis, that's the place I see, of course, with homicide. I mean, we had that very tragic shooting in California not too long ago where a firefighter shot another one. Um, But also in the suicide side, I've had so many people now that were about to or did, you know, take that that step. Now, luckily, they survived and came on the show, whether it was a shooting, whether it was jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. But every single one of them reports that feeling of being a burden. And, and you know, th- we look at suicide as being selfish. Oh, think about your family. And then you actually speak to people that were in that dark place. And they were like, no, I felt like I was an absolute piece of shit, a burden to everyone. And so, yes, I did think about my family and made the selfless choice to take myself off this planet to stop hurting them complete doesn't make any sense whatsoever but when you put it in that fantasy world that you just talked about that miswired world it makes perfect sense and so as i talk about your red flag shouldn't be oh you know i'm thinking of killing myself i mean that absolutely is one but if you justify removing yourself from this planet because you think you're a burden that to me is the one that people should be talking about and you don't hear that and then you put that same example that you just gave us with homicide to these school shooters and they're in this fantasy world now where they literally believe they're in a video game from, you know, speaking to, to experts in the field and then some of them try and one up the death toll than the one they had before. So that psychosis element, whether it's self harm or harming others makes perfect sense.
1: And, you know, looking at that, so this was something else I ran across and I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. Um, the interconnections of suicidality and homicidality. So, You don't see this. There's not much of it out there, actually. The only way I was able to find it was with domestic violence. Um, So typically with domestic violence, you'll see more homicide with psychological abuse. You'll see more suicide with physical abuse. So, But it's the only category that actually shows that. So if you think about suicide and homicide, who's to say that suicide is not just Um, kind of intrinsically holding those feelings and homicide is externalizing those feelings, you know, because there's, there, there's a connection there because you don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to kill myself or you don't wake up. That's not normal. I mean, people do wake up, yes, and do that, but you know, it's just not normal. And one thing I was, you know, and the homicidal aspect, you know, would, it would be one that I would have to look at more specifically, but definitely with suicide because I've dealt with so many individuals that just have chronic suicidality. Going back to the brain's polarities, you're in control, you're out of control. The brain always, so let's look at physics, looks at, look at Newton's law of every um, equal and opposite reaction. You know, every reaction has equal equal and opposite reaction. If you feel out of control, the brain goes to polarities and the ultimate, and this, if you talk to someone, especially the suicidality piece, when they've made the decision to kill themselves, they feel more in control than ever because they just trump the whole situation. So I've had suicidal thoughts before and, and, it, and it, I don't know if you have, but it scares the shit out of you when you have it. And fortunately, you know, I had taught actually I don't know if I talked to the therapist before or after that, but I was like, OK, this happened. He's like, you felt out of control. And that was your brain's coping mechanism to say, I can get you back in control. So that's why people, you know, when they've made the decision to kill themselves, they have this sense of calmness because they're completely in control of the entire situation. And that's very unfortunate. So I'll tell people all the time, 70 percent of people have suicidal ideations in their uh, in their lifetime. It doesn't make you a bad person. It's your brain coping for something. So when those situations come up, what happens we get scared. Oh, I'm sick. Oh, it's a taboo. And if we give this sense of like where your sympathetic nervous system kind of goes, Oh my gosh, what did you just do? The brain will bring it back instead of having a suicidal ideation be like, okay, what? Wait, no. What was that? You know, kind of thing. And be like, okay, I'm working 80 hours a week. I've got this and this and this and this. I feel like I'm out of control and or like you know like i'm i'm losing my thought process with categorization prioritization all these things i just need to step back and have a reprieve you know that's the way it should look instead we go to providers cuz we're scared little puppies you know that walk in and the provider's like oh well yeah nope you need a medication i bet you're struggling with anxiety ptsd depression here start these 3 pills or these 8 pills and let's see what we get, you know, kind of thing, instead of actually looking at the root cause and understanding it. So, you know, there's a lot of peace. I mean, it'd be, it'd be interesting. Um, I mean, fortunately, the people who, you know, tried to kill themselves that you've talked to lived, but it would be interesting to see, to talk about their sense of calmness afterwards. So you get two things, either the person becomes extremely calm or they're so tired of everything they're numb so like we give ketamine infusions at my company what we'll see people who are truly suicidal they'll get an infusion and then their scales get so much worse and it's because they're starting to feel again all Mm -hmm. their feelings went away because they were numb and what i like to do personally is slightly scare people who has suicidal ideations and I'll say, okay, listen, I know you feel out. Did you feel out of control? Is that And they're All and typically they're like, yes, it's, you know, it's okay. When you spoke to someone who killed themselves, did they say that they felt more in control or they actually lost all control because they were laying there as a dead body and they had no control over anything anymore. And they're like, not really thought about that. I was like, right, let's think this through. It's probably not a good idea because I've never talked to someone who's killed themselves and said, how did that go? You know, um, so it's that idealistic sense. If we kill ourselves, it's going to be better. Who's to say wherever we're going next is going to be better? We don't know. Like, you know, and and maybe if we could talk to somebody about it, then we could have a rational decision. Um, but, you know, but we just we don't know. Like, you know, and there's all these horrendous things. I mean, look at look at Europe. You know, we've got all the beautiful churches, but. You got all these fire pictures in the cathedrals. I mean, it kind of scares the shit out of you when you walk through these beautiful (laughs) cathedrals and see all these people burning or their skins pulled off of them, you know. Um, (laughs) So it's, um, you know, there's there's just so much to it. I wish we could all be real and talk about, like, life and be like, yeah, it's okay. Come here. I'll hug you. I'll hold you. I'll push you forward. Um, But don't be a victim. Um, you know, life is too hard to be victims. Um, I think we need to appreciate what we've been through in life and then, you know, push forward and use it for the better purpose of others.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's so interesting. It's funny. You just, I can see all those kind of uh, medieval portrayals. I'm like, God, they were so emo back then. Some long haired dude with black makeup guy. I'm just drawing dad, leave me alone. <laughs> but, uh, you know, with the, uh, with some of the, the conversations I've had, um, certainly before one of my um you know, i call, consider him a friend now julian pano who's a, a strength coach talks about mental health almost in the the fight flight freeze and flow stage and obviously flow is you know we're we're healthy and then you got fight where you're kind of resisting a bit um but freeze was almost like flow again all right i'm submitting and and i've had people report that of people that we've lost Right before, they were the happiest that they'd seen him forever. So that definitely is that. But then Kevin Hines and Emma Benoit and some of these people that have survived their attempts and some people that pulled the trigger and didn't go off who've had those two, were instantly like, what the fuck did I just do? as they were falling, as, you know, whatever it was. And so there was an immediate regret, which tells me again that that decision wasn't really from the heart, but is the miswiring of the brain. The moment there's an actual reality to that, as they come out of that fantasy that you were talking about, it's this, oh shit, you know, and thank God for them, they were able to, to survive. Emma ended up in a wheelchair, but, um, you know, they're still with us and doing amazing things now in the mental health world. But we've had insights now, you know, so I, I agree with everything that you said.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um, grounding, right? I mean, so when we talk about, fortunately, with the brain, it was Yale University looking at ketamine infusion specifically, they made an accidental discovery that rodents, so they were given rodents a lot of ketamine to try to make the little guy schizophrenic because they wanted to treat schizophrenia. And fortunately, the little rodents became less depressed. And they were like, wait a minute, what's this you know about? So, you know, fortunately, we've now proven you can put your brain in a situation and it will start healing itself, right? It regenerates. We used to, what, 10 years ago, shoot, probably most of the population still thinks that our liver is the only organ that can regenerate. But we're now we're seeing that the brain can regenerate. We've just got to know how to talk to it. And, and that's a piece that, I think, again, we're very antiquated. So, you know, it's this kind of like pissing match territories um, in the medical space to where, you know, when you're looking at ketamine or psychedelics, which is a great, you know, thing for everybody to look at, you know, psychiatry like, oh, no, it's ours. Anesthesia is like, oh, no, it's ours. You know, and, and then all these people and it's like, wait a minute. What if we said the brain was more than just anesthesia, neurology and psychiatry? What if we said the brain actually has about 6,000 categories instead of three? You know, and that's the piece that I really want to change for people is like our brain is very complex. One really neat thing, being around ketamine especially, I've been around like 8,000 infusions, but one thing that I'll tell people, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is what makes sense to them when I tell them this, um, is... When you're struggling in life and you're in the middle, like I'll tell them, picture you're in the middle of a snow globe and I shook you up and you know, there's, it's a heavy storm around you, but you can't tell where it starts and where it ends. It just feels heavy. You know, what ketamine and psychedelics do is they break up. It'll be like a sliced MRI that they'll make that snow globe look and we can pull one of those slices out and we can analyze it. And that chapter goes away. And it starts giving the brain more room until the snow falls down and you can tell where you are. You know, that's the piece that we've really got to work on because the more you put people who don't feel right on medications that make them feel more weird, what are we doing? You know, kind of thing there too. And then the other piece, like I told, I told this, I tell this a lot at universities and and to kids, you know, if our brain stops, categorizing and prioritizing it's unhealthy because think about it with the people you know back in the day when they're like oh they just had a nervous breakdown like completely different person you know never able to work again like it was like a surprise um you know but when these people they probably struggled with this for a long time before anyone actually saw them break but if you get to the point to where you just have a lot on your plate we we all get that right like oh gosh i don't know where to start We always need to know where to start and need to know what takes precedent versus what doesn't. And if we get to the point to where we can't, then we need help. And, you know, fortunately, you know, there's like mental health coaches now that are starting to come to the surface, not therapists. So we're not going to have to sit here and process your childhood on how you fucked up when you were little. But we more so want to process the coaching on, Okay, here's your situation now. Let's talk about. What's the next step that you can take to help lighten your load? And if we start getting those, you know, normal ADLs, right, your activities of daily living, and we start looking at that as our like little staple triangle instead of, you know, we look at shelter and food and water, we really need to start looking at here are the basic steps on how to live with your brain. Um, You know, so there's, um, there's a lot to the brain and I think the more that we look at the brain as okay someone has 10 things going on at any given time healthy or unhealthy if we look at it that way instead of being like what's the one condition I'm trying to diagnose you with then I think we can start changing too but it's exhausting when these people come in they're like I've had depression for 48 years okay and you know I'll start talking to them and, and they're like I'm like did you have any trauma well, yeah, but, but when I was raped, when I was raped by my dad four times when I was 12, um, I, I got depressed. I'm like, no, you didn't get depressed. That's a trauma that, that caused depression-like symptoms. But this part, I'm like, has anyone ever told you you might have PTSD? No. You know, and that's so common. Like they don't look at these details of when people were raped or when they had a miscarriage or when they got hit by a car. We don't look at these and then we and then unfortunately we call them traumas. So now people are like. Traumatized because we've overused the word trauma to where now I've gotten to the point of, okay, if you have one of those um, situations, like you just said, with your sympathetic nervous system to where you have a moment of pause on a fight, flight or freeze, that could be a situation that your brain didn't process correctly and let's not put a name on it. Let's not say you're a bad person because you can't sleep or you punched your wife in the face, you know, while you're sleeping, thinking that you were in the middle of the war, you know, like, let's just look at, okay, when you froze, what happened? And, and try to look at the situation around that, because what happens too, which is really fascinating is when you see people, especially on ketamine, say they got raped and they've been like, hey, I've been in therapy talking about this rape for 10 years and I just keep talking about it. Like My brain will not let it go. What we see with ketamine specifically, because I'll tell people, I'm like, you don't have to think about anything. The ketamine will help your brain bring it up. It may be the coffee cup that was sitting in the room at the time that person was raped. That's allowing the brain not to process it because like what the therapist will say is it's usually the thing that grounded you during the trauma that your brain won't let go of. But who's going to talk about a coffee cup when they've been raped, you know, unless they're on ketamine and then they're like, there was this pink coffee cup And, and the therapist will be like, where was it? You know, and they'll be like, it was over there on the side table And that's typically the last piece that they need to process of that entire situation. And then the brain will process it, puts it into the long-term memory. There's no emotions attached to it. That's when the victim becomes the survivor and they're able to move on with life. So, you know, it's, there's just a lot there.
0: Well, it's, it's, again, fascinating to hear because, for example, the SEAL community, Navy SEALs. I've heard you know so many VA stories, and again, they're always very, very, you know, uh, specific about. Look, it's not the provider, it's not the people, it's just that the machine is. You've got PTSD. Here's a bunch of meds, and it's over and over again. Well, th- for some reason, like about two years ago, I think it was Jeff Nichols was the first one that came on. Um, I started learning that the SEAL community are having great, great um, success with psychedelics, ibogaine, and some of these things so, here's these, you know, elite warriors that have access to the VA and, you know, should be all these different therapeutics and, and nothing's working. And all of a sudden, I mean, they're just stacking up, waiting to go here. And again, it's a tool. It's not a cure-all for everyone. But then you hear about TBI and now, you know, psilocybin supposedly is helping regenerate, which is another incredible, you know, innovation and discovery. But then I, but I had uh, Dr. Ben Sessa on who talked about MDMA-led counseling and having... A close friend, because I would never do this. I'm I'm too much of a good boy, but a good friend of mine did a lot of ecstasy when he was younger. <laughs> and I can see how walls would come down and therefore open the you know the, the the doors for conversation, but things that are locked away in the mind. So understanding you know, if EMDR EMDR hasn't worked, if um, you know, psychotherapy hasn't worked, that there are other tools for people, certainly as you said, if it's locked Locked down, and there's just one little anchor hanging onto that damn memory because so many people have trauma. And I you know, use that, that term deliberately, not overuse it, but 544 episodes are out at the moment. I would say easily half, if not more, of those people have told me of trauma, probably more, you know, f- anywhere from being the middle child and feeling unloved through to being raped by a family member. So we need all the bloody tools and help we can get. So this is, you know, so exciting to me when we're learning about this. I mean, the drug prohibition laws is another entire conversation that I've aired many, many times here, how, uh, you know, that needs to just go. But um, so talk to me about ketamine. I'd love to hear your journey, you know, what made you go into anesthesia and then how you yourself started finding um, or, or thinking about the application of that on the mental health side.
1: You know, I've always believed in karma, doing the best, you know, kind of thing and hoping that it returns. And I, the more that I go down this path, the more I think, OK, this is probably why my life is, you know, this is the purpose, you know, kind of thing that I've been drawn to and, and why I've had different experiences in life. Um, so uh, yeah, I worked at a level one trauma ICU. I was more so in the cardiac ICU and you know, did a lot of hearts and things. Sometimes I'd be on neuro or medical or whatever else. And I was 27 years old my ankles hurt, my knees hurt, I was swelling up, you know, I was tired, you you know, you lift all these deadweight bodies all day long, you know, that are on the vent and stuff, and I actually, I had a, a CRNA, so a certified registered nurse anesthetist come up to me, he's like, you need to go to anesthesia school, and I was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, and um, he he's like, you know, you just need to go. You make a lot of money, all this stuff. And he's like, you know, you just need to go. And I was like, okay. So then I started looking and, you know, why did I go back to anesthesia school? I went back to anesthesia school specifically because they made a lot of money. Uh, you know, at the time as a nurse, I was making 60000 a year and then anesthesia professionals will make 200000 250000 a year. It's a three-year, 80-hour program. And I was like, oh, I could do that, you know, whatever. It's fine it was, it was, it was like hell on wheels. Um, you know, 80 hour weeks for three years. And I had a one year old daughter. Um, but, uh, and you get like five days off. So that in itself was slightly traumatic. It's kind of like, it's like in the medical world, it was their still team, you know, in the medical world with the anesthesia school crying on the way to the hospital at 4am, you know, things like that. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so I got out, I went to UNC Charlotte actually and, um, great! It was a great place to learn. Uh, did all kinds of stuff, and then I came to Knoxville and practiced. Um, I went to five different hospitals. Uh, I was I did call. I did OB. Um, so you know we did epidural, spinals, um, ortho, generals, neuro, hearts, um, anything, um, kind of thing. And and that was the one piece with anesthesia. I had no idea that they gave this much responsibility to anesthesia providers. But my gosh, like. I was paralyzing babies on purpose in utero to fix their kidneys, you know, when I was in training. And then, you know, the oldest person I've ever been involved with open heart surgery with was 106. So, you know, so you're expected as an anesthesia provider to know everything. And then they were sending me, I got half a half a day of orientation. And then I went, then I started going to these Four other hospitals besides the one that I got half a day orientation in, and it's like a straight up. You, all right, it's time to sink or swim, and and my gosh, you know, what well, unfortunately what happens sometimes is the ones that mess up, then they get to do the easy cases. So I guess it was complimentary that I was call at five different hospitals and got to do all the specialties because it, you know, it's a uh, slightly stressful. So anyway, you know, times change. You know, you kind of get in the hospital and everything's kind of glorified, and and I. I, I, really do enjoy anesthesia. It's a fun, um, it's a, it's a fun place to, you know, make quick decisions, see quick results, um, you know, and, and, and do a good job. Um, and two, you know, you're kind of the head of the hospital-ish stuff to where, you know, when someone's dying, anesthesia walks in, everybody else walks out. So it's got that kind of, you know, the ego thing, you know, in the hospital. Um, but I ran across some ketamine studies in, in 2016, 2017, and honestly, I was like, what in the world are they talking about? And because ketamines it's you know—it's a, it's a dissociative anesthetic, so we give ketamine all the time. It really was losing its popularity because we have to give such big doses. And, you know, oh, Warren, you're a paramedic. I'm expecting you've probably given ketamine out in the field.
0: We never carried it, but my dad was a horse vet, so he gave jugs of the stuff. There you go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So when, you know, when people are like, you know, in the OR, you know, you have to give so much of benzodiazepines to counteract all the necessary or all the side effects. And if you don't, people trip out like, um, you know, they're they always feel like they're on a rocket on a different world and they're like, my whole body is vibrating. And, um, you know, so it's a drug that we really did give a lot of because um, we had all these other good drugs, you know, propofol Everybody likes that, you know, Mac- Michael Jackson's drug. um. But, um, you know, we give all these other things. So ketamine kind of lost its promise in the OR, but then started looking at all this stuff. And and, and honestly, I mean, I got to the point in anesthesia, I was like, who who am I helping right now? Like, you know, am I pleasing? Like if I'm doing like a stage four glioma and the patient wakes up and moves all four extremities within 10 minutes after the surgery closed, because that's what we like to do, right? Everything's speed in the OR. Um, you know, like, did I just please the surgeon? Did I give this guy two extra days to live? You know, I mean, I don't know, you know, kind of thing to where like I started questioning the qual, my purpose, I guess, more so in the hospital. So I ended up looking at all this ketamine stuff. And I was like, you know what? I think I want to do this. I think I want to help people with treatment resistant conditions. And the, the three conditions we looked at initially were depression, anxiety and PTSD. And um, coming from a rural community, they're you know they're saturated with trauma and drug abuse and everything else, and and that's another piece with addiction that very passionate about that, and I think that that whole system's antiquated as well. Um, but we you know opened up, and honestly, the people that started coming to us, it breaks your heart it breaks your heart as a provider uh, when you see these people who have been trying to get effective help for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and they've never felt like themselves. And, you know, fortunately in anesthesia, we're about 99.9% effective. And we're like we're like the safest like uh, profession out there besides airline pilots. So here we come out here in this world of you're only about thirty percent effective, and you got people that have been going for four or five decades trying to get help. So it, it's a it's a drive now, like guys, like what what? Wait a minute, like we've got to lift this bar up, right? The bar's on. You can just kick the bar across the floor because I don't know if you can get any lower. And then two, if you know, if you look at placebos, placebos and our current treatment right now are about the same. So instead of trying to keep creating the definition of insanity, right, where you keep trying kind to—what of, what is it, you uh, uh, do the same thing over and over, expecting a different outcome, why don't we just shift? Like, let's just shift and go over here. So, you know, I started the clinic in 2018, expecting it would be like part-time. I'd be part-time at the hospital, part-time at the clinic. Um, anesthesia, the, actually the leader of the group, came up to me and said, we don't deal with mental health, you can choose. You can go to the clinic or you can stay at the hospital. So I said, I'll go to the clinic because I will happily walk off anybody who gives me that, you know, kind of option. Because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not playing with that, you know. So, you know, it really lit a fire under me uh, because I really wanted to be successful and to be like, screw you, you know. And, and it was called voodoo medicine is what they told me it was, which now I look back and I'm like, ketamine's the most widely researched drug across the world. And if we want to look at anything, voodoo medicine, let's look at anesthesia. We're 99.9% effective. We have no idea how these drugs work in the brain. The only mechanism of action that we test is with the pulmonary. Like we, we actually look at the lungs and we look at those levels to see what we think the brain's doing. You know, so there's no real time anything. So again, it's that judgmental characteristics of the medical field that we're not supposed to have. So open the clinic, um, became almost a breath of fresh light uh, or fresh air, you know, to all these people. Um, and it just evolved. And honestly, it keeps evolving, right? When people are like, oh, is this what you planned? I mean, right now, I'm the CEO of a public company. We're gonna have 10 locations by the end of the year and at any time the company's worth anywhere from 15 to 50 million dollars and it's on three stock exchanges and this company's not even four years old. So what does that tell you? It tells you either I'm really really good, right which let's hope that that's what it is or it tells you there is a need out there that's so severe that people are looking for help and they're now starting to receive it. And that gives a lot of hope too. So, you know, we started out looking at those three conditions. Those are still the three primary conditions that we do look at um, in suicidality, of course. Um, But, you know, the youngest we've actually had now is 10. The oldest that we've had is 90 because fortunately anesthesia life, right? We get to look at everything and feel comfortable with it. But, you know, when you have a parent call you and say, my eight-year-olds tried to hang themselves three times, or my 10-year-olds tried to hang themselves three times. Um, we've been inpatient six times. Can you help me? Most providers are going to say no, that they feel uncomfortable. You know, fortunately with the anesthesia people, and, and the way we've actually set up the clinics is we have medical professionals. We have therapists. I have learned so much from these therapists. Um if you can't tell. Um, And, you know, and then we have, um, you know, nurse practitioners, acupuncturists. Like we have a whole community that's still looking at the same piece of cerebral landscape, but with a little bit different view, but still able to look at it, you know, holistically and hopefully down to the level of what that person needs to be heard. Um, and we're non-judgmental. I'll tell people, I'm like, I don't care if a person walks in and they want to be a unicorn and they've been had surgery and they've had a, you know, a little horn put on their head. If they want to be a unicorn, let's let them be the best unicorn they can be because that's what they want to do. You know, and, I, but too, I've also tell people, I'm like, you know, now if you had sex with a goat, like 30 minutes ago, we should talk about it, but we're not going to judge you. And they're like, hey, I didn't have sex with a goat. And I'm like, I understand that. I try to use extreme examples because, you know, there's still some things that may be good decisions and maybe bad decisions, but let's look at them objectively instead of subjectively and putting values on each other. So, but why are you so defensive? <laughs> <laughs> really? I know they were like, I yeah, know, that's true. It's valid. I didn't say that because I work with mental health and sometimes people are a little bit. Um, uh, personally, whenever I'm struggling, my husband likes to tell me to pull my head out of my ass and, and reorient myself. That works for me. That doesn't work for everybody else, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> you're right with the, with the goat stuff. But um, the more I see this, the more I see how broken the system is, the more passion it gives me just to push, man, you know? And, and two, though, it's one of those things to where, if there's not me, if I can't take care of myself, that I'm not doing a service for others. So it's one of the other things to where I try to, um, you know, have a little bit of uh, reflection. I do move fast um, and I, and I, but I do sleep. Now sleep's one of my things. I hate it for veterans or or whomever that have um, sleep issues because, I can sleep a solid eight to 10 hours and I'm fine. I'm like a dead body on the ground, you know, but that's it. That's a skill, fortunately, that most medical providers have, Um, especially when we do call because we'll literally sleep in a rolling chair in the hallway before we go in to surgery. So, again, I don't know, you know, that might be a conditioning thing there, too. But I'll tell you, you know, people who insomnia conditions, night tear, sleep paralysis, all those things, Ketamine and psychedelics are going to be a great thing for that. It's going to be so much hope for that because think about it. We're talking about reality and fantasy. When you go to sleep, who controls your dreams? We don't know. Our subconscious, you know, we don't really have that much control. Um, I have a really, really awesome forensic psychologist who's one of my heroes. um, Straight up, probably seen some of the worst stuff in the whole world. Um, And, uh, you know, really... Really hangs my hang my hat higher for her, um, but she was explaining to me one day that with ketamine and with where so ketamine technically is probably somewhat of a psychedelic, even though we're still trying to figure out all those evolutions up. But with ketamine, she said she's gotten to the point now, and this is about three years in. So she you do a you know an induction cycle, try to break the cycle, but if you keep getting repetitive traumas you still have to you know do what helps those so you know about three years in comes in like once every three to four months for a booster Um, but has gotten to the point now to where she says during the infusion because everybody's awake you feel different during the infusion it's almost like you're in a dreamlike state but you can consciously control where your brain goes and she recognized Doing that was exactly the same as what she was doing at night, but she couldn't control where she was going. So, you know, to be able to do that in the day, because think about it. A lot of people, and I don't know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but a lot of people that have insomnia issues with PTSD, they're scared to death to go to sleep because they never know where they're going to go and they don't feel like they have control over it. So it's that fear aspect. So, you know, if you're having a, if we can imitate a similar experience while you're consciously actually awake, controlling that dreamlike state, and then you go to sleep and the same thing happens... Then you get back in control of your dreams, you know, and you're like, oh, I want to go and have a dream about being on the beach, you know, kind of thing. And you can do that. You don't always have to go to the war zone. But what happens is when that fear comes at you, you feel out of control. And then you go to sleep, not knowing what's going to happen because you're out of control. And then these horrible dreams come and you feel like you have no control over it because we don't know how to stop it. So, I think there's going to be a lot of hope for insomnia people for sure.
0: Yeah, that's really encouraging because so many people that I know, you know, that have struggled, it affects their sleep, and therefore they're sleep deprived. When then you're in this just vicious circle, where you're slowly breaking that brain down. Next thing you're in that that right hand zone you're talking about, or left hand. I think we're we're mirroring each other. Um, you know, where where you're getting towards psychosis now. So I think it's incredible. I just love to. You talked about the snow globe analogy, so. For a person they come in, what would a session look like just so people kind of paint a picture of their eye, maybe remove some of the the anxiety about this particular therapy?
1: Every clinic's different right so that that's a big piece you really want to know who you're looking at because uh, you know the the practices are are different so that's one thing I want to bring to everybody with the whole revitalist aspect is I want to bring consistency of care to where if you saw someone, you would know what to expect because it is so different in the outpatient world. Um, one thing about it is they've proven that the brain, mental health and pain are directly correlated and picture it. You're a man. When you get a cold, you hurt a lot worse when you're sick, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, But with mental health and pain, chronic mental health, they have proven causes chronic pain. Chronic pain causes chronic mental health. Fortunately, ketamine and hopefully psychedelics, hopefully there's going to be some studies come out with psychedelics eventually with pain, is showing that psychedelics and ketamine can address both. But but pain typically is a little bit more complex. It's a little bit, you know, it's just, it's just odd. Um, So basically with mood, so there's mood and there's pain and then there's mixed mood and pain infusions. Some clinics just do mood. Mood's typically about 40 minutes. Um, that's what most of the studies will say. It's a 40-minute infusion. Um, and with mixed mood and pain, they're two-hour infusions. With pain, they're four-hour infusions. So 40 minutes. We actually have therapists that sit with everybody during because you get all this weird stuff. You'll be sitting there. And you're like, oh, my gosh. I have, you, you see people, like they like look away, and you're like, oh, what are you thinking about? And they'll think about something really, really random. And they're like, I'm sorry, am I like a squirrel right now? Like my mind's going all over the place. And when I'll tell people, I'm like, you're awake, you feel different. Give the stars to the therapist. Let the therapist make the constellation for you. Once the constellation's there, your brain sees it, it goes into the long-term memory. So What it does, people are awake. They should be awake. Um, You know, the recommended dose is like half a mg per kilo, uh, over 40 minutes for mood. Um, But really, there's, of course, there's arguments, right? There's arguments that it's the dose. There's other arguments. It's the disassociation. So, and disassociation is polarities. Your brain goes to the complete polarities. And what therapists will tell you is when your brain's in that world, that's the optimal time for it to integrate. And that's what you want is you want integration in order to create neutrality. So with the 40-minute infusions, what I will tell people, because they are, they're scared to death. And I'll tell you, if I ever saw something that said it gives you an out-of-body experience, there's no way in hell I'd do it. Nope. Nope. I'm done. You know, like I have I never had surgery. I've given a lot of anesthetics. I've never been in surgery. So I'm kind of like you uh, with the control piece probably. But um, what it does, the neat thing about IV especially, and this is one thing because I know that there's a lot of people they are getting all different formats of it. IVs, everybody looks at IVs. Oh, they're so scary. The neat thing with IV is it's a very predictive onset, plateau, And then clearance kind of thing. So you start the infusion. People are awake. They start feeling different. What I'll tell them is you're going to feel like you're in between um, a reality state and a daydream state. So picture you're back in history class and you thought it was really boring. So that you're, you're going over here to think you're daydreaming. And the teacher's here. Ketamine does that to you. It induces the daydream. But what I'll tell people is participate with the daydream because you can always ground yourself. But the daydream is your subconscious coming up. Let's see what your subconscious is doing. Participate in the daydream. And then if you need to ground yourself, ground yourself and come back and be like, oh gosh, but but participate in that daydream. We're not going to yell at you like your history teacher used to. So, you know, participating in that is where the brain starts bringing up all these subconscious things that nobody would have any idea had any type of quality effect to their day-to-day life. But it's the same way I'll tell them, you know, it's it's like that gut feeling when you walk in and you're like, oh, I don't know why I got anxious all of a sudden, or I don't know why my stomach felt like that. For some reason, your sympathetic nervous system went on high alert. So when you're able to actually participate in that daydream, knowing you still have control over grounding yourself if you needed to, That's the state that we really get people in. We give them the dose, the recommended dose, but sometimes you have to increase it because their pillars become much stronger, right? So some people, when we feel weak, we feel like if a gust of wind comes, it's going to knock us over. Well, when you walk in, you know, and and they're like, oh, are are you having to increase my dose because am I getting addicted to it? You're not getting addicted to it. You're getting stronger to where it's making it harder for us to push you you know, so we want to get those people to those mindsets, and then they start becoming that objective person again, and that's one thing I told one of the police officers, because we've treated several active-duty police officers, and I told him, because he, you know, he used to go into houses and do SWAT and all that other stuff, um, and he's like, now I go in, and I worry about shooting a cat, like, and I'm so afraid, like, he's like, I'm in a big old emotional ball, and I'm like, Okay, so we need a balance, again, with emotion and objective, right? You want to, you don't want to walk in worried about shooting a cat when you're doing a drug deal, um, you know. And so, But the neat thing about ketamine is it disassociates. So when you look at disassociation, I think that's the biggest thing that our brain needs. And I think we can do it naturally, honestly, using our endogenous chemicals. We just need to know how to tap into them. Um, but it separates the emotion from the objectivity, so our brain at any time it, those are two complex things together but when you separate the emotion and the objectivity you can analyze objectively the emotion as to what you're feeling and then it goes away it's it's like this fear you know but the more the more afraid you are of it the the louder it gets so with the typically what they'll do with sessions like mood People are awake. They see a therapist. Um, when it's over, it's over that quickly. Like people will plateau. I'm like, you comfortable? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I am com- I feel you're right. I do feel weird, but I understand it. You know, so it is a lot more control than what we think. You just have to change your viewpoint to it somewhat. Um, but once the infusion's over, people will be like, oh, wow, it's over. Like it's that quick off, which I love about IV. So it's quick on, quick off, very well controlled. Um, And then, you know, we get people to drive home and stuff because they're very basic. Their brain goes back to very basic. It's like their polarities. They go very clear. They have a special sense of clarity, and they're also foggy at the same time. So another piece, too, with trauma, when you're sitting in an infusion with a therapist, you're not – you don't have to worry about getting stuck with the trauma, which can happen with the MDR, um, the neat thing with ketamine is it does have some amnestic qualities. So once the infusion's over, typically people will be like, oh, gosh, that was dark, wasn't it? They were talking the whole time. But they'll be like, oh, gosh, that was just, it was dark. Like, I don't really remember details, but it was just dark. So, you know, it's one of those things where you don't have to worry about people getting stuck. What you do have to worry about, though, is people with, like, complex trauma, Once you let that down, they're so used to not processing things at all. Um, The brain will actually start processing so fast. If someone's told them that they were manic in the past or they had hypomania like symptoms, it may scare them like, oh, gosh, like I can't stop my thought processes. So I'll tell them, you know, after an infusion, especially with complex trauma, let your brain do what it's doing for the next four hours. Just go home, relax, let it do its thing. And it's processing. It's doing everything. We've stimulated a process in your brain. It's fixing itself right now. And after each infusion, they'll start to tell. They can tell. They're like, I didn't know. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to say. And some people don't notice anything after the first because I'll tell them, you know, when you've walked into the woods for three years, you can't walk back in an hour, you know. So it's really a big, big learning curve. Um, I'm hopeful that our adolescent population will ask for help more quickly, especially if they can see that this works more effectively. But, yeah, it, it's something that um, I think everyone should consider if they're ever getting to a point of um, not no return, but if they're getting to a point to where they can't categorize and prioritize thoughts. Um, or they're starting to have suicidal ideations, um, or they can't sleep. Uh, it's one of those things everybody should look into this because it is. It, it it breaks it, it breaks the cycle, puts you back on track, gives you your life back. And we don't have that with other drugs.
0: But it's so, so important that we hear this. The barrier to entry, obviously, to MDMA led therapy, to psilocybin and ibogaine is. Our completely ass backward prohibition laws don't allow any of the people that serve this country to actually get that treatment. That uh, again is another another discussion. So the fact that there is a treatment that is legal, that is, you know, under license that's available, I think is is incredible. Now what about um insurance? Because sadly that's another barrier to entry, I think, with a lot of people. Like, all right, I'm ready to find help. Oh yeah, awesome. Sorry we don't take your uh, <laughs> your insurance, so good luck with that
1: most most clinics don't most clinics don't take insurance you know i i got to the point um, to where like no one helped you right like i'm an anesthesia provider and i'm doing mental health and i'm like eh? like you're completely opposite ends nope um so you know we actually we created our own insurance team um, that knows the whole insurance aspects and they came in and they actually followed us through and they're like okay these are what you can charge. We just have, to, and they knew all the rules. So you know they. So we actually do accept insurance. The ketamine aspects, they actually won't cover that yet, but they cover everything around it. So it's something. You know, it's better than nothing. There are actually there is an article starting to come out that um, ketamine is starting to be covered by some insurance um, companies. So I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be a great thing for insurance companies because they're going to save so much money because it's like 70 to 80% effective as compared to 30% and then being on drugs the rest of your life. You know, these are things people come in for six sessions and then they come back as they need to. That's where we're going against the grain a lot because we're not used to come back when you need to. We're used to take your pills at seven, three and 11, you know, and, and it doesn't matter. You just gotta keep this much levels, you know, in your plasma. You know, so it's it's something like we've got to teach these people skill sets. Come back when you need to. You don't have to be in hell before you come back. You can be in the gray. You can actually enjoy life. You don't have to feel like every day on life you, that you're a warrior and you are you have to fight through life to do this. You don't have to. Like people can actually enjoy life. So, you know, and, and that's what I was telling one of the police officers is like, I know you all scan things, you know, rooms and stuff, and I and some you know officers can't stop scanning. I was like, I don't sit there and picture me doing CPR on everyone or intubating people all the time to make sure that I still have those skills. So instead of us doing that or expecting, like, we need to jump into action at any time, it's like, can't we just think that our subconscious may help us with that and we're just going to respond when we need to? You know, so... We're just going against a system again, you know, as always. I've probably said this a lot on this call is, you know, um, a system that needs to be updated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about having 10 clinics ultimately. So where will Revitalist be in the U.S.?
1: Not ultimately. We're going to have 10 clinics at the, by the end of the year.
0: Oh, and that's that's in about three weeks time. <laughs>
1: exactly. Ultimately, um, they're actually looking at making around 160 clinics across the states, and then we we've actually had people reach out from Israel and Hong Kong and Dubai, um, about going over there as well. So, um, it's going to be can Katie create the infrastructure that's necessary in order to do all these? Because they were actually asking me, how would you go? How would you do this in London? I was like, well, first I would have to look at the. The system, the payer system, to understand it differently than the U.S. system. So, you know, I do think that there's going to be a lot more of this across the entire world. Um, and um, yeah, so yeah, you'll see. I mean, I want to push aggressively because I think we have the key to help. And and the people who say this should be this should be psychiatry, this should be anesthesia, I think that they're still very boxed in their mindset and they're not looking at we have a global crisis. That needs to be addressed. So let's look globally, how do we increase the masses to get the people the help that they need? Because right now we're doing a disservice by not providing people access to the necessary care.
0: Absolutely. So which states will those 10 be?
1: Uh, So we have four in Tennessee, one in uh, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, one in Raleigh, North Carolina, one in Bethesda, Maryland, which is right outside of D.C., one in Novi, Michigan, which is right outside of Detroit, Richmond, Virginia, and then Jacksonville, Florida.
0: Beautiful. Brilliant. Se-
1: seven states. And that's just the tip of the iceberg there.
0: Excellent. Now, I just want to make sure everyone knows, so Revitalis is the is the clinic. Um, just tell me, and we talked a lot about ketamine today, just tell me the other therapies that you offer there because, as you said, I mean, there's no, like – one, one size fits all for mental health. So you have several other kind of options and outlets there as well.
1: I, right. And the way that I view that is what works for you is may not work for me. Um, so, you know, IV is the most effective way for, to receive ketamine. Um, but also there's people that would prefer to die than to receive an IV. So the thought process with this whole company is how can we offer things that are highly effective that speaks to the entire crowd? So we offer um, we, the IV ketamine. We also have the IM ketamine, the shots. Um, we have um, Spravato, which is a nasal spray. So the, again, that's a medication you could take. That's FDA approved, um, and it's a spray. So it's least it's it's a, the lesser of the invasive options. We also have TMS transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is going to be something really, really cool because they're actually starting to have a lot of more scientific data produced with that. And that in itself is amazing. Um, So we'll we'll see that grow immensely, I feel like. But it's a non-invasive option and it's not a medication. You know, so that speaks to crowds. We have, (coughs) excuse me, we have um, therapy, personal therapy, group therapy, intensive outpatient therapy, which is like eight people sit around with therapists and, and you talk about all these different things. They do dialectical um, behavioral um, therapies DBT. Um, we have mental health coaching. Uh, we do telemedicine and here's something really, really cool that we're doing that uh, is going to be really cool. We're creating a virtual clinic on the metaverse to where people can actually utilize VR or or the extended realities um, Mm -hmm. wherever they are. And our therapists are working on platforms to tap into the endogenous system of the brain to help the brain to learn more quickly on a real-time level instead of being like, James, I need you to breathe. Do you feel this? Instead, you know, we really want to make the brain to where the brain can um, absorb that. So like I told somebody earlier, I was like, picture your, your watch, your eye watch. And when it tells you to breathe, you know, that little circle gets bigger and it taps you. Like if we do that with the brain and the brain responds, which we know the brain can respond with breath works and yoga and meditation, then, you know, the sky's the limit there. And what does that do? That creates greater access Um, I don't know if you've looked at the metaverse at all, um, but it also, you're able to create your little baby avatar and if baby avatar can go in and actually do this stuff, you're the avatar, you know, in real time, no one knows it's you getting help. So it helps to put a barrier there to where you don't have to go out of your house. You don't have to show your face. You can be a little, whatever you want to be, you know, kind of thing. But you can still tap into the brain and be able to help heal that. So that's one of our big projects for 2022. Um, And, too, you know, like I said, it's all about access. Like, there's not enough people to do this right now. And we're territorial and, you know, all this other stuff. So let's figure out how do we bring access to these people. And and I'm hoping that Elon Musk eventually hears this and can bring, like, electricity to people with the VR sets, you know, to where people – who have no access, who have to walk to a provider five hours away, they may be able to utilize this and get the help that they need. So lots of hope, lots of cool things that we're doing, um, but we're trying to make it to where everyone has an option. We also have vitamin infusions, of course, um, but, you know, but to where everyone has an option um, to get help um, on several different levels.
0: Well, it sounds amazing. I mean, when Joe connected us initially, he, um, You know, I was excited just to hear about the ketamine, but when I really dove into, you know, your site and what you offer and think about this audience, um, there's so much value there. It's incredible. Now I want to go to some closing questions. If you've got time, I want to just touch on one thing that you brought up, but we didn't really explore. Talk to me about rural medicine. What are some of the issues that you're seeing in rural communities that maybe aren't as apparent in the urban community that I spent most of my career in?
1: It's just different, right? So I would go in and sit. I've sat on these boards down in Knoxville. Knoxville's a, you know, it's a good-sized city. Um, you know, not London or New York by any means, but but it's a city to where they they give a lot of thought process to, you know, comprehensively. Um, but in rural medicine, it's very reactionary and avoidance. Um, you know, when I was growing up, if you didn't do drugs. you were um, uncool kind of thing so you know you did drug you try to fit in the crowd um, but you know drugs were around everywhere it was a small enough society to where everybody mingles in Um, you know probably in like I I look at people my age now and I'm like oh like oh you can tell they lost their teeth you know probably about 10 years ago because you know when you lose your teeth you get the jaw atrophy even and I'm like okay so here's People of my age, you know, they may have eight kids, no teeth. Um, So it's a big lack. I won't say it's now society looks at it as a lack of resources. And is there poverty in the rural areas? Absolutely. But it's more on the aspects. Think about the reservations, Indian reservations, you know, too. It's more on the thought process of um, about like, with people with me, you know, they would say, oh, are you going to go to the city? Are you going to be a city girl, you know, kind of thing? And then when I would go to the city, actually, or, you know, 20 minutes away, it was a population of 75,000 people. But that's where we went to shop and eat and all this stuff. But, you know, you go over there and people are like, oh, do you wear shoes? Are those your teeth? You know, and, and you, you hear this and then you grow up as a child thinking, hell, everybody's better than I am. You know, and I'm still working on this, um, thinking that, you know, maybe, maybe they, maybe they aren't better than me. Um, but you know, but the first time, like when I went and worked out in Los Angeles, I was so excited to go to see your Sinai. You know, I lived actually down in Hollywood, and I was just, I just knew this was gonna be the best opportunity. And I was uh, very um underimpressed, you know, when I went out there. And, and fortunately, like I said, you know, I have some emotional intelligence and analyzation skills to where I just knew everything around me was better than what I was. So I don't know if it's a thought process in the rural communities to where we're trained not to feel like we are better or smarter or, you know. So, I mean, I did five sports. I had a 4.0 GPA. My principal was like, hey, I'm going to um, – nominate you to be a Rhodes Scholar and I was like okay I have no idea what that is you know and I made it to like the top two people and he's like oh and I was like okay like so like I just didn't know like you, you just it's like you're living life people around you don't have purpose always they're just there and, and you know honestly if my parents, she's like, oh, my mom was like, when you become a CRNA, you can come, you can live here. They'll pay you $400,000 a year, you know, and I was like, no, I'll kill myself. Like, you know, because I just don't like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, honestly, if you get people from reservations in rural areas who, you know, we always like shake hands when we get out, you know, when I see people out in the world, I'm like, oh, you made it out. Good job. You know, and but there's other people there that are fantastic and they're increasing the education, the advancement, the community advancements. There's people that are doing that, but really it's a very small majority of it. So honestly, I don't know. I mean, like, so Erwin, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but you know, Erwin um, was actually a Jeopardy question on what's the name of the town that hung an elephant. So back in the early 1900s, um, the Mary was the elephant's name, but she actually stomps on somebody's head, and another city tried her, and and the reason they brought her to Irwin is because Irwin was a big railroad community, and they had a they tried to shoot it back in the early 1900s. They couldn't euthanize it at all, so they brought it over to to hang it with one of the cranes. So there's a picture, right? That's what everyone's kind of known for. And now we paint out, everybody paints elephants and they give it to elephant reserve to try to make up for the bad juju, you know, back in the history. But, you know, but there's, it's just different. It's interesting. Um, It's very traumatic. I would say it's very traumatic growing up in a rural area, unless you were very comfortable with yourself and me feeling like I was never enough. Growing up there, I mean, it, it just, it creates a vicious cycle. And if you look at the grants right now across the country, they're pouring money into rural medicine to try to help people. I don't know if that's what we need or if it's more so, do we just need to break the cycle of the generational cycles um, that go on there? You know, because now people are like, "Oh, I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember me." I'm like, "Of course I remember you. I went to high school with you." You know, but they're like, "Oh, you're, you're, you seem to be very successful. I can't believe you talk to somebody like me." I'm like, "You're a person. Like, of course I'm going to talk to people like you." You know, so but it's it's that piece of I'm like, "Okay, they're they're me. They're what I was when I lived there, and I'm still working on my confidence level." But yeah, I mean, rural medicine hospitals are closing. Um, they pay people tons of money to go and do rural medicine um, but the thought processes just aren't they're not there and, and, and again it could be people with high IQs it's the conditioning of the environment that I think that needs to change um, so I don't know you know people who are experts with Indian reservations you know they may be more experts in rural medicine as well but it's like they become their own little territory and if you get off you know then you you just, you just keep running
0: <laughs> yeah it's an interesting perspective i actually grew up in a farm just on the outskirts of smallish town i mean small definitely by you know american uh standards um and you know there's there's people i've got friends who live there and love it still and, and thriving and my uh my son's mother my ex her grandmother grew up in a really small town near here you couldn't pull her from that town she is just genuinely content great-hearted woman but she just loves the simple you know country life that she has but yeah i felt completely shackled i couldn't wait to get the hell out of there you know so i can relate to that too and i also got to la and to to hollywood boulevard and i was like oh (laughs) oh well there you go there's a kindergarten up there with razor wire this isn't quite what i was expecting but uh um but no but it's it's an interesting thing And, and funnily enough the hanging the elephant is a great analogy for what we're seeing at the moment you know, rather than say who the hell brought a fucking elephant over here, <laughs> they're just hanging the elephant, you know. And <laughs> and to me that's like, you know, with, with this last year and a half, no discussion on obesity, diabetes, mental health, opioid epidemic. Think. Let's just hang the coronavirus and everything will be fine.
1: You're Completely. Yeah. You're right right there. <laughs> Good summary. <laughs>
0: All right, well, I wanted to go to some closing questions so I can let you go. We've been chatting over two hours now. It's been amazing. Um, The first one I love to ask people, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated.
1: Oh, gosh. You know, you're going to think I'm really weird. We've talked this whole time um, about the one book. So I don't read off. I do read all the time, but I don't read books. Um, There's a book that I think is very instrumental um, so I, my history, I didn't include the fact that I came from like a domestic, uh, psychological abusive situation, uh, with, with somebody who actually was a mercenary, uh, worked with Blackwater. Um, so who hated me for about 10 years, probably still hates me. Um, but currently I'm alive. So I've played my cards right somehow. Um, but you know, but that was a, um, really, um, tough situation, you know, kind of leaving a a psychologically abusive, narcissistic uh, situation to where like my husband now said, you know, you've got battered wife syndrome. And I was like, what? No, you know, kind of thing. And I was so here I came. Who knows? Could be that I came from this rural area. And then I, you know, I got together with a guy who's from San Diego, who's this awesome ass mercenary who, you know, I just thought hung the moon to where therefore I was this little tiny moldable product. That really got messed with in the head. But um, the one book I honestly think saved my life was a book called Psychopath Free. And that book actually put objective bullet points with psychological abuse. And it was really, really good to see. And it now it actually may, who knows? It probably has helped me with this stuff too. But um, actually, my mom did say he—I probably got a lot of good training in dealing with difficult people. I'm like, okay, you're right. Um, but um, when you look at like domestic violence, especially, it's a very underlooked um, situation because it's very emotional. Um, and, and you know, rightfully so, right? People walk around; you never know who's telling the truth. Um, you know, with these things, and then you know, people want to put you in like shelters, and it's just like what? Like it's so just weird. And then other people be like, therapists would be like, "I'm afraid you're in danger of your life." I'm like, "Oh, okay." Um, you know, so <laughs> so it's all these like different like things. And here I'm like, I'm getting my first master's degree. And I'm like, why don't I know anything about this? So. That book, Psychopath Free, because I, w- I started reading some books because I was just looking for direction, right? I was in the snow globe. and <laughs> was, It was a hell of a storm. Um, but um, I was looking for direction on like, okay, is it me? Is it like, what's going on? Like something's not right. And, you know, some of the things with domestic violence, especially when you start reading them, they become very subjective with emotions. And I don't like that at all. I'm like, just give me the facts, pros, cons, facts. That's all I want. And when I started reading the psychopath free book, there would be a sentence in that book. I just start crying because it connected with me so much. I mean, this is a guy who broke into my house twice, had the um, uh, I had a lieutenant in my house saying I had stolen weapons, you know, um, DCS, sexual abuse accusations all this stuff. Right. I've been pushed to my limit um, several times uh, to, to gain the thick skin that I have to hopefully have this purpose driven life. But that's the best book. Um, to where if there, if you ever have anybody, I feel like, um, who's looking for direction like, um, and, and you know, you never, I mean, a lot of people will throw up the violence flag and, and say that, and it's really maybe how are you also contributing to the situation, but, you know, but if there's a true situation out there, that's a great book. Um, it's a short novel and it was really, I probably read it twice. Um, and then afterwards I was, I was good. I was done. Um, because I was able to see the pattern of what goes on. And then two, now it helps me to look at the pattern of mental health. Um, so now I'm to the point of everything in life has a pattern. And I really think about the physics laws in life too, and that helps to keep some direction. So that would be the book.
0: Well, that's a, a hell of a story behind the book choice, and I haven't heard of that book either, so thank you. I'm going to add that to the list.
1: Yeah. So
0: next question, what about a, a movie and or a documentary that you love?
1: Oh, Oh uh, gosh, I don't know. Now you're gonna put me on the spot with this. Um, um you know the things that I love now. I mean, like, um, oh, with um, like, I like watching the documentaries. Um, you know, probably the movies more so, I guess. Um, with like um, Queen, like seeing you know um, that whole movie there and having giving insight and reality. To what those people lived through, even you know Elton John's, even that came out. Um, you know, those are those are really good pieces that I just think are phenomenal. Um, Movie-wise, honestly, if I ever had to just sit down and watch a movie, I would watch Alice in Wonderland, the back in the back in the day one with the the Cheshire Cat, because I think sometimes that's what life feels like. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Actually it's funny um MDMA story with my now ex wife in Japan. We were sat by the water one day and that's what she used to see when you happen to be taking that particular thing. You look up at the moon if it's a half crescent and all of a sudden the Cheshire cat's smiling at you. So that <laughs> I'm very familiar with that cat.
1: <laughs> yeah, <it's> true. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: How many police officers have you had on that have done ketamine?
0: I'm not sure if I've had any that have done ketamine. I've had lots and and I've had, you know, a smorgasbord of success and or failures of different therapies, but I don't know about ketamine specifically.
1: There's one that I would tell you. He's um, um, he has he just retired. Been on the police force for 26 years, and ketamine saved his life. They thought he had a stroke. Actually, his PTSD symptoms were so bad he couldn't speak for like three days. Um, but um, he still gets a stuttering problem. But he's a really really good person. Um, his name is Dave Shell, and and we've actually done some videos together. Um, because here's the piece with that why it needs that needs to be so instrumental is police officers are not always granted the same opportunity to do drugs or to do psychedelics or ketamine because their departments won't allow it so how do we address the community issues with our police officers we allow our police officers to get the help that they need we educate them. We help to increase their profession. And then that way they can make wiser decisions because the more we ignore it, the more we don't allow access to them, then the more the community turmoils will happen. So, you know, um, police officers, um, there are, we do have a um, police department that actually they've sent us six active duty officers and the police chiefs have said it's saved their entire department. Um, it's changed the whole dynamics of it. You know, so, and some of these guys are veterans as well. There's a lot of veterans that coexist as veterans, you know, veterans that are active police officers. So we need to get the system to say ketamine is a great drug for, you know, for these people to to actually, even though they're frontline workers, it's not chronic, you know, it's very well controlled, all this other stuff. And then also, you know, um, the people with um, addictions, you um, a lot of people won't get ketamine because they think that they're falling off the wagon with addiction. So, my view to that, my viewpoint on that is if you're sober, because we're such a sober society, and I, I hear that. I grew up with everybody doing drugs, so I don't necessarily like them, and I think everybody abuses them, um, or most people do. Um, but if you are sober, and you don't believe that you should take a ketamine infusion because you'll fall off the wagon. That also means you can never have surgery again your entire life if you're sober. Because we give you substances that would make you fall off the wagon. And, and you know, I know a lot of people be like, well, don't give me Dilaudid or morphine. Don't give me any narcotics. We're giving you Propavol. You know, I mean, that's a, that right there in itself is a substance that can make you fall off the wagon. You know, so if people can look at ketamine infusions as a medical intervention and not uh, be- taking benzos or tabs or whatever else, then I think we'll get to a healthier society there too. So addiction-wise, I don't know about that. But I just wanted to add that on there because that's we have people that are sober, but they're living with the same conditions that led them to do drugs in the first place, and we're not helping the underlying conditions. It's just they don't have a – bad behavior anymore.
0: Yeah. No, I agree completely. And I think you don't, you don't fix addiction without fixing trauma. It's just that simple. We're turning yeah, to yeah, whatever yeah. it is. It can be illicit substance. It can be, as I've seen with my own eyes, it can be overtime. It can be gambling, porn, social yeah. media, TikToks. God forbid, yep. please stop those fucking TikToks. Um, <laughs> but you know, so, so yeah. And what I think is different about what we've discussed is as we see, and we, we touched on earlier when you go and you're told you have hypertension, they're like, all right, well, here's what you're going to be on for the rest of your life. Versus, all right, right now, yes, your blood pressure's through the roof. Let's give you something in the meantime. And then let's talk about diet and exercise and get you to where we don't have to give you these drugs anymore. And what I'm hearing from the ketamine is, here's a treatment that hopefully you'll never have to come and use again after you complete. Or as you said, if you get reoccurring traumas, you always can come back through the door. But the whole point is for you ultimately to not need this versus here's a lifetime supply of anti uh antidepressants or whatever you are prescribed
1: yep reset and then get on a new path and that's what i tell people all the time they're like i'm so sorry i'm like you're just on the wrong path let's just get you on another path like you're not your brain's functioning the way it needs to function because it's in this hyper excelled aggressive mode you know so let's just tell the brain it doesn't need to be there put you over here and then you're going to be okay like fortunately you know your brain is functioning very well um you know but we we i don't know we just taboo people you're sick i'm sorry your brain's sick and you know and it would just be nice if we could just say how about re-edit you know let's work on your tricep i noticed your triceps not you know really good so why don't we look at the brain that way you know let's just do some reps to get the tricep better if you want your triceps to show let's do the same thing with the brain let's just help build the structures and we've got the ability.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you know, the sites and, and you personally, what do you do these days to decompress?
1: Oh, well, I did just go to Turks and Caicos um, on Thanksgiving week. So that was phenomenal. Um, you know what? Um, I literally will stop Um, And I can tell I can tell if I get to the point to where um, I can't think a whole sentence through or I'll start losing my creativity or things like that, um, I literally will just stop and put it down. And you have to have that ability. So I'm not one that ruminates. I just put it down. Um, So to have the ability to stare at a wall, to lay in your bed, stare at the ceiling and literally clear your mind is what I do um i also take baths almost every night and that's like if you walk in my house it's probably where i'll be um you know but it's uh, it's one of those things right you got to have your your me time and and otherwise your productivity goes way down
0: beautiful all right for everyone listening then where can they find revitalists and then if they want to connect with you where are the places online
1: so Revitalist, if you're looking corporate wise, so all these lovely people that love to invest in all these awesome things that we're doing, uh, they can go to actually Revitalist.com um, and Revitalist, you know, it's R-E-V-I-T-A-L-I-S-T, all a made up word that my husband said I shouldn't make up a word, but I made it because you got vital, which is life, revital, second chance of life. And then the IST is the catalyst that we're acting as to give you a second chance of life. You know, so Revitalist.com. Most people don't know how to pronounce it nor spell it. Um, so that's where you'll see me more so corporately. Uh, Knoxville is actually my headquarters, so RevitalistClinic.com there. Um, but really, you can find me everywhere. I mean, there's a lot of videos that are starting to come out with this. I think with the space, it's. I think we're going to kind of set ourselves apart in the space a little bit because um, we kind of get it, I feel like, somewhat. Um, but yeah, I mean, people want to email me. They can always email me at Katherine Walker at revitalist.com um, or corporate at revitalist.com. And I have some really awesome people that help me to stay in touch.
0: Brilliant. Okay, I want to say thank you. I mean, it's been such an amazing conversation. We've gone all over the place, but. As I try to do with these episodes, the whole point is to bring someone's life's work in, but bring solutions to problems. And you know, for a lot of people listening out here, a lot of people to be on the show, you know, this the the trauma side obviously a trauma problems that you helped in the previous kind of chapter of your life, but this mental health element, and I think we're going to see, like I said, a ripple effect, is so so pertinent and. With there is a multi-generational element, there's no doubt. But we need a hard stop, and it seems like this is one, you know, of, of the very, very exciting uh, possibilities for people to really finally address what's going on, hit the hard reset, do the work, and then be the first generation that's basically unfucked themselves.
1: There you go. We need t-shirts. <laughs> Unfuck yourself.
0: so I want to say thank you so much though thank you for coming on the show thank you for you know telling even some of your more uh, challenging parts of your story Um, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time today
1: yeah thanks for having me always if you ever want me back I'm always here and clearly you can tell I'm full of a lot of words